VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, April the 21st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing this. Come on with an edition of Open Line this morning. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So if you're in the St. John's area, just looking out the window, you know it continues to be socked in with the rain, drizzle, and fog. Got an email from, obviously, a very panicked uh, motorist this morning after they arrived at work to say, ask me to remind folks that the ruts are full of water. And this, this person apparently had a little fishtail aquaplane uh, situation this morning, which is obviously quite scary if you've ever encountered it. In addition to that, you know, when people try to straddle the ruts, right? I know I do. But more, more often than not, the straddle takes place towards the center line. So if you're on a four-lane highway, for instance, like the Outer Ring Road this morning. So I was straddling closer to the middle of the road. So was the person in the left-hand lane racing like a hero this morning to get to wherever they were going. And consequently, we all get a little bit too close for comfort. So something to consider as you're trying to keep your tires out of the ruts. And there's huge puddles everywhere. So if you're in a region this morning where it is wet like it is in St. John's, just be mindful that the pedestrian is hoping to get where they're going as dry as possible. Having to put up with the rain is one thing, but getting absolutely saturated with a uh, car or a vehicle blasting through a puddle, let's see if we can avoid that. All right, good luck to the Growlers tonight. Try to bounce back after a Game 1 loss to Adirondack 5-3. They go tonight. And, of course, for the Leafs fans, a real roller coaster of emotions. Nice bounce-back victory last night as they even up the series with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Captain John Tavares with his first-ever career playoff hat-trick. Their big guns were flying last night, so Leafs and their fans breathing a sigh of relief as they head to Tampa Bay for Game 3. Mercer and the Devils, I thought they were going to give the Rangers a run, but they suffered their second straight 5-1 defeat, both games on home ice if you're a Devils uh, player, fan, or team. And so they are up against it. Newhook and the Avs tie up their series at one apiece. And let's go a little local. So Herder, Game 3 up the shore. The Deer Lake Red Wings are going to have to find a way to get back in the series. They're down two games to nothing. Two of the defending champions, the Southern Shore Breakers. And good news for Clarenville. Man, they're up at Dundas, Ontario, playing in the Allen Cup, one of the most lauded competitions in hockey in Canada. And they're up through, they're, pardon me, they finished the round robin 3-0. They get a bye directly into the final on the weekend. So good luck to the Caribou trying to win yet another uh, Allen Cup. Okay. It's too bad for the strikers that the weather is so miserable. So there's some 5,900 members of PSAC that are on the picket lines around the province. One picket line in Labrador, 18 on the island. So one of the issues, and you know, sometimes you wonder about how the message is being crafted. I saw a kind of a bit of a silly clip somewhere, I believe it was in Ontario, and the workers were being asked, or the picketers were being asked, about the remote work issue. And they were offering reasons like, well, it's risky of getting sick when you go to the office setting, and or cost, and or daycare, some realistic uh, uh, opinions offered. But the real message, if you're PSAC, and we can talk about remote work or whether or not you think it's a reasonable option that should be offered to employees, whether it be in the public or private sector. But the reality is, regardless of where you come down on it, the federal government was able to save billions of dollars in commercial real estate costs with fewer uh, public sector workers in the office. So if I'm PSAC, I'm putting that one out there loud and clear. If you know, you're talking about a benefit to taxpayers and a way to, for instance, if they get what they're demanding in a 4.5% annual hike in their pay, 
then some of the monies that we can use to pay the public sector employees can come from the savings of commercial real estate. So that message seems to make a lot of mathematical sense to me, regardless if you support or oppose their position, their demands, or whatever else is under the sun, and let's take it on. All right. This is an interesting report coming from an anti-poverty think tank in Toronto called Maytree, and they're looking at the number of people on social assistance right around the country. I don't think anyone would be surprised with the outcome necessarily, but they're telling us that some 7% of the population in Newfoundland and Labrador use some of social assistance programs in 21-22. Ontario is right behind us at 6.9%, but 7 seems like a pretty big number to me. Back in the mid-90s, it hovered around 15% of the population were on social assistance. The lowest uh, recipient uh, percentage is in Alberta at just under 4%, and then the numbers vary across the country. What's not offered in this, and I haven't seen their report, and I'm sure they do a little bit of a deeper dive here. So inside the 28,000 beneficiaries of some sort of government assistance in this province, I guess the next question will be, who are they and why are they receiving social assistance? Now, there are a variety of reasons why some people will need some uh, support from the government, and you can, you know, itemize them in your own mind. But, you know, if we understand how and why they're in that life circumstance, then maybe we can develop programs to improve the lot, not only for the individuals, but of course it comes with expanding the tax base if you're working and everything that goes with being an employed citizen. I don't begrudge people a social assistance check if they really need it. We do know that there is some abuse of the system, and the numbers were stabilized and coming down steadily from the mid-90s until the pandemic struck, but here's where we are. So add into this the, the issues surrounding because the amount of money they get is really pittance. It's really a very small amount of money on these social assistance programs. So is it time for a complete rejig of how that looks and works? And eligibility, eligibility issues for that type of support. You know, you can add in the health accord, looking very clearly at the social determinants of health. And I'm not saying that if you receive social assistance that you're automatically unhealthy, but the likelihood of interacting with the healthcare system is intensified when you live in virtual poverty. So how do we approach this pragmatically? You know, is it an issue of the cyclical nature of some families that are on social assistance? There is a likelihood that if mom and dad were in those types of programs while you were a child, there are statistical uh, issues with the fact that you may indeed end up receiving social assistance as well as an adult. So we've got to break it down a bit further than simply using percentage numbers. And then, you know, talking about the social determinants of health. A lot of people really push back against the concept of universal basic income. All 40 members of the House of Assembly voted uh, unanimously to forge a committee to look at that particular possibility. You know, if we do some math on it, because nobody wants to have programs that are just live for free, you know? There's got to be some clauses and uh, incentives for people who maybe need that basic income to get into the workforce, whether it be with additional training opportunities or what have you. Did many of these recipients finish high school? There's some big questions yet to be asked. And this is not to be judgmental. This is just to be realistic, to understand what the numbers mean. So inside universal basic income, for instance, if we add up all of the programs available federally and provincially for folks who need that additional support, if we add up some of the boutique tax credits that might seem very unnecessary, if we close the loopholes for the uber wealthy and how they avoid paying their due share in taxes, then I think we can probably do some math to describe or articulate what it might look like. 
what the overall cost will be and or the overall savings would be. So 7% is a number we should consider and ask some varied questions beyond that. Okay, sticking with the number 7. So Newfoundland Labrador Hydro has their annual rate increase proposal in front of the PUB looking for an adjustment of 6.9%, so in essence 7%. So apparently the government asked Hydro not to make this about Muscat Falls. Now, that would seem to be an optics issue versus a reality issue. In the most recent provincial budget, there was a transfer of $190 million to Hydro uh, talking about rate stabilization associated with the Muscat Falls project. So the PUB, of course, has not adjudicated uh, this particular application at this moment in time, and there's a breakdown inside that 7% as to the items that they're referring to. But, I mean, while we're heading towards some sort of resolution at Muskrat, 7% on the 1st of July would move the rates from what they're telling me is around 13.4 cents to 14.3 cents. And, you know, every little bit does indeed factor into our overall ability to pay the bills, keep the wolf away from the door, to fill up the fridge and the, and the cupboards. So if you want to take that on, let's go. Also, inside the world of hydro, you know, I know we're not going to get any inner workings and transcripts coming from any negotiations between the province, hydro, and Hydro-Quebec regarding 2041, but that's going to come sooner than later, I would imagine. Neither side, I think, is interested in dragging their feet too long. It does feel like it's a long ways away, but in the big scheme of things, it's really not. And then, you know, the whole conceptual issue regarding this Atlantic Loop, my goodness, I've been so frustrated thinking about it and talking about it, but if it's ever going to come to pass, we need a bit more details. They talk about it in the federal budget. We talk about it in, in so far as the Infrastructure Bank of Canada and what have you, but we really don't know how it works or who's involved or who, where the pecking order lies. So any of those hydro-related matters, let's go. All right, let's talk about the bills. This one here, okay. So Matt Barter, student at Memorial University, he, through access to information, wanted to find out just how much the university is spending in their legal bills regarding Matt Barter's uh, challenge at the Supreme Court for some of the restrictions uh, imposed on him on campus. Okay. So now we find out that Mon is paying legal bills to the tune of $22,234.50. Now, yes, Mr. Barter did bring forward the court case, and this comes with a legal cost for Memorial University. But the real issue for me is that this should have never happened in the first place. So Matt Barter uh, did what he thought and was calling, and I think people think was a silent protest, holding a poster that st said, Stop Vianne. Now, and that's, of course, uh, in reference to former President Vianne Timmons. So they deemed that to be uh, outside of the student code of conduct. They said it was a form of bullying, harassment, and or intimidation. Universities have long been the home of dissent. And people should indeed have the right to protest. And to, to tell me that that sign, even held in the presen presence of Dr. Timmons, is a form of bullying or, or harassment... It just feels like that's a little bit of a overreach by the university. There may be an essence of some thin skin involved with that decision as well. So we can talk about the legal bills, but I think the most important question is, how did we even get to the courts? Matt Barter should have the right to do that. You might think that it's rude. You might think that it's unnecessary. But, of course, everyone's opinion can chime in on this stuff. But if we're going to silence all dissent, whether it be spoken, written, or in the form of a poster, Look, we can tell when things go too far. 
You know, we know what posters should not be displayed on university walls. There is a line. It might be different for me than it is for you, but we all can recognize when something goes too far and goes down the road of discrimination or goes down the road of hatred. But that sign really feels pretty innocuous if we're talking about university setting, dissenting voices. So the legal bill is what it is. But how we got there is the most important question. So it was mishandled by the university, my personal opinion. And if you want to take it on, we can do that. And then we can also talk about the search for the next president and hoping that there's more in the way of due diligence. And that doesn't cost us $150,000 like it did last time around. So that's a big one. And let's take it on. Stick with schooling. I'm still trying to find out more information about the fact that there's been a negotiated or a tentative agreement to sell some 32 schools once owned by the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation to the province. I still don't know why the Schools Act didn't prevail here. If those buildings were continued to be used for educational purposes, then they should have been protected from any of these types of actions uh, or the need to negotiate a settlement in the court. So, again, nobody but nobody begrudges the Mount Cashel victims their due compensation, and hopefully that money flows by the end of the year. But I really still don't understand how the Schools Act didn't prevail. And keep the schools out of this particular conversation. Anyway, we can take it on. Let's go. All opposition parties are calling on the government to do more about what seems to be very much discriminatory practice of discharging children with exceptionalities, autism included, from daycare. You know, are we going to learn any lessons from the Carter Churchill Human Rights Commission decision? Because that very much painted a clear picture of how that child was discriminated against. Because you have autism or any other concern or issue that may indeed require additional supports in a daycare setting, we have to be able to figure out how to accommodate. So the opposition parties, I think, are absolutely right on this one. The government has to figure this out. Now, there's a couple of things that may indeed ease the system. If we look back at the amendments made in 2017 regarding the need to be uh, early childhood educators at level one, there was government compensation. They were given five years to do so. But it also made the, uh, the situation a little bit worse when retired teachers or social workers were unable to perform the role of an inclusion worker, which could indeed ease the worry for the operator, could indeed accommodate those who need additional supports in a daycare setting. So let's figure it out. Another really smart one that they point to is that when there was concerns in school, the province made the decision that retired teachers could come back into the fold, perform their duties as a teacher for up to 90 days without impacting their pension. Let's do that. You know, We've just leaned on $10 a day versus all the other moving parts and the infrastructure that needs to be in place to make that $10 a day a realistic issue for families, whether it be with the toddlers or autistic children or whatever the case may be. We've got to do better. If some people are being turned away when asked the question, is your child on the spectrum, you say yes and they're, they're automatically told, well, I'm sorry, we can't help you. There's something patently wrong with that. So the opposition parties are absolutely right, and we need the minister to be able to speak to us and to accept uh, interview request to tell us what we are doing about this. Because just imagine making the decision. Quitting your job or leaving the province because your child has autism, can't get a spot in daycare, or whatever other type of diagnosis might be in place. So anyway, that's a big one. And also, interesting to hear from folks from either Paradise, CBS, St. John's, or Mount Pearl about this agreement, this MOU, to move forward with the Regional Economic Development Agency. You know, I understand this concept of collaboration and cooperation. It does not do away with competition, I don't think. But we really don't know exactly how that works. Because if you add in 
all those three C's of collaboration, cooperation, and yes, competition, who gets to come out on top here? Because a lot of it will go with whatever attraction and foreign investment or businesses. If they land in CBS, it's a win for the uh, residents of that community or Paradise or St. John's. And St. John's kicking in 70% of the financial contributions does mean, you know, does that carry a bigger stick? And if there is investment coming, then there's a hierarchy of who gets to come out on top. I don't know, but if uh, you're one of these residents, let's talk about that particular issue. And it's the last chance for you to spread some good news and highlight a volunteer in your community doing great things. And tell me some good news today, because I have to finish with some ridiculous news. Okay. So many people think that the prime minister and the current liberal government have an ethics problem. And you're not wrong. I mean, there's several document, documented instances where there has been breach of ethics and violations of the ethics agreements. But this kind of stuff here, if it wasn't so ridiculous, it would be hilarious. So the interim ethics commissioner, a lady named Martine Richard, has decided to step down. Okay, she's been a lawyer in that office since 2013, but here's the trick. She's the sister-in-law of Liberal Cabinet Minister Dominic LeBlanc, who himself was found to be in uh, violation of the ethics code. And that all pertained to a fisheries issue uh, some years back while he was the minister. Can we please? You know, sometimes the optics are indeed the reality for voters, but when you've had a government that has been taken to task because of their ethical or unethical behaviors far too many times, imagine the self-own of putting a sister-in-law of a cabinet minister in such an important role as the ethics commissioner. So now, because it is indeed ridiculous, and people have been talking about it, and calls for her resignation and or her firing, now she's stepping down. Rightfully so. She should have never been put there in the first place. She might be a terrific lawyer. She might be able to even separate herself from the familial uh, relationship with Dominic LeBlanc. But the fact of the matter is, we can't have that stuff. We just can't have it. The government should know better. Of course they should know better. Imagine sitting around the cabinet table or whatever room that this decision was made saying, oh, that should be okay. Yeah, sister-in-law of one of our cabinet ministers, perfect for the uh, ethics commissioner's role. No, sorry, it's not. Anyway, everyone loves a 50-50. It's the final chance for you to get in on the action to help support the Avalon Celtics Minor Hockey Association. Most importantly, their uh, members, their players, and their families. So we got a 50-50 going. Just go to AvalonCeltics.com. The pot is over $20,000. Ends this weekend, so... Get your tickets while they're hot. If you, don't buy, if you don't buy a ticket, you can't win the prize. But this money will go directly into controlling fees and offering programs and support services for our members over the course of the hockey season and, uh, and through the summer. So please do indeed go to AvalonCeltics.com. Get yourself a 50-50. Everyone loves a 50-50. We're on Twitter. or VOSM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOSM.com. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to have a great show. I can feel it in my water. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the Director of External Affairs at Munsu. That's John Harris. John, you're on the air. How's it going, Patty? Not too bad, I suppose. You? Good, good. I'm uh, just calling to give you an update. Uh, uh, we at Munsu met with the Premier yesterday along with Munfa. Uh, and along with uh, the you know, uh, interim pro or in, no, interim president Neil Bose uh, at the premier's uh, office, and uh, uh, we've we've got some updates for you. Uh, we will be getting a minister to come to our town hall next Wednesday, and we have received a commitment that tuition will be uh, reconsidered. The tuition question will be reconsidered by uh, the cabinet, and uh, so I'm. I'm, I'm 
feeling positive and uh, cautiously optimistic about this uh, development. So for Cabinet to reconsider a tuition-related matter, that can only mean they're reconsidering the amount of money they transfer because the tuition decision will be made at Memorial, right? Yeah, and that's the, yeah, that, that's the thing. Uh, 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 according to uh, the Premier, the, the decision around tuition was largely brought to, to the Cabinet from the past president. Uh, so, you know, I, it, it doesn't feel to me, you know, I, I know the Premier can speak for himself, but it doesn't feel to me that they're completely married to the uh, $68.4 million cut. Uh, they, they, they recognize that people have been, you know, hurting from uh, the gaps in uh, the funding. Uh, you know, we, we also brought up questions like um, how can, how can uh, people, you know, go to school if they have to do five courses in order to get provincial funding when many students take four courses or three courses? Uh, and if you fail one course uh, and you may per- lose your funding uh, because you have to have five courses to get provincial grants. So they, they took that, that into question as well and, uh, you know, going to consider it and, and, and come back to us as well as uh, MCP access for international students. They have to reapply every 12 months. Uh, it can be a really hard, you know, thing to have access to MCP. So these 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 questions are being considered and, and, and we're uh, positively, you know, cautiously optimistic about it. You know, the whole issue with uh, a targeted provincial grant money for students who need the leg up, I've always been curious as to why we don't treat it just like an application for a student loan, but, but, but not applying for the loan, applying for the grant. So we use that as the benchmark for assessing whether or not you uh, need additional supports, and then adding in things like if you are coming here from Port of Basque versus living in St. John's. I think we can go a little bit deeper dive here to assess who really needs the support and make sure they get it. Well, that's the thing. You know, I I, I really truly believe a, a universal system is is better. But if you take a, a young family from uh, Buren, say, with low income, and uh, you know, have a, a, a son or daughter that wants to go to university, they're they're taking on a lot more cost. Uh, than uh, the average, you know, person in St. John's because you have to put in, you know, residence fees, uh, you know, transportation back and forth. Uh, so what you're looking at with this new new tuition is about fifty thousand dollars if you include four years in residence. Uh, so that's a lot of money for uh, someone to take on a lot of risk as well to take on and, and make a big step like that. And I think what we're going to see is that uh, the domestic rate of uh, attendance at Memorial is going to be sharply declining. I think the, the numbers haven't been transparent yet, but what we're looking at is about 19.4% less, uh, you know, people going to choosing to do an education, you know, whether that be, you know, the, the price tag shock, I think, is enough for people to not want to take on that debt, uh, regardless of, of whatever patchwork of, of grants and loans and what will be forgiven and what won't be forgiven. People are going to look at that price tag and they're not going to show up. So I, 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 I don't think people are ready for that kind of risk in this current economy. So, I mean, does that are you suggesting that they won't do any post-secondary period because of the tuition costs at month? Because if we are looking across Atlantic Canada, we are still extremely competitive. Oh, but but the thing is, I, 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 Newfoundland and Labrador is, is cannot be compared to you know other provinces in the same way because you know we have below one of the lowest incomes, we uh, average incomes. We have uh, you know the a high unemployment rate. We have a, a lot of rural areas that are uh, you know more remote than say in Nova Scotia, and you know we only have one public university. So you know when it comes to choice of uh, you know. Uh, public university, you know, memorials are best shot for, for most 
uh, people, especially under the average family income, which is 70000 So half half of people are uh, in the province are not going to be able to even think about going to any other Atlantic University. Uh, I appreciate the update, John. When you have more to discuss, give us another shout. Sounds good. We'll be see you next week, uh, Wednesday, 7 p.m. at the uh, Breezeway Cafe and Bar for the Student Town Hall. Appreciate the time, John. Good luck. All right. Take care, buddy. Have a good one. Bye-bye. John Harris is the uh, Director of External Affairs with Monsu. Let's keep going. Line number two. Leonard, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? That's kind. How you doing? Not too bad, my friend. Miles the old day out there. Tis that. Yeah, but well, let's expect those fools. Uh, Newfoundland is telling me here anyway. But before I get on to my topic, I want to share a good news story. Good. About the game last night. We finally got justice when it comes to the refereeing. I don't know if you're aware of, but uh, uh, Wes McCauley, there's a conflict of interest between him and Sheldon Keith. Okay, I don't know if you're aware of that story. What's the conflict? Well, uh, Sheldon Keith's uh, agent, uh, when he was playing hockey, him and uh, I don't know all the story, but uh, I'll let you... uh, do a bit of research. There is a bit of conflict of interest in that uh, between those uh, individuals. But I won't get I won't get deep into that. Well, I'll just add one to that though. The Leafs were five and one when McCauley was the ref during the regular season. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just going about. I'm just talking about this present time right now. Uh, about uh, what, what was going on in that, uh, the other night's game, Wednesday night's game. Wednesday night's game, night. Tampa Bay was the better team. I mean, no uh, one loses 7-3 because of the ref. Well, a lot of questionable calls, Patty, if you've seen the game. I saw the, uh, the slashing penalty was ridiculous, I thought. But I, I didn't think McCauley ref necessarily a bad game. Tampa Bay just absolutely outplayed the Leafs in game one. Yeah, well, the trials should have been ready for them since January. They knew where they were going to play anyway. But uh, yeah, okay. that's uh, okay. That's uh, like I said, we'll agree to disagree on that. But uh, Patty, it was good to see uh, Tavares come uh, to the forefront last night wearing the captaincy. That's the way he's wearing the captaincy. I suppose he's got to be a leader. And to see Giordano drop the gloves, that was pretty impressive. I like that old time hockey. But I don't agree with the fans getting involved like they did last night as well. That's not uh, very classy for the trial fans. They're not known to do that. But anyway, I'm going to get on to my topic uh, about these heat pumps, okay? I had my audit done, and uh, after it was done, uh, I was told that uh, the minimum that I would need would be two uh, heads uh, with those units, okay? But in order to qualify for the grant uh, and get the maximum amount for the grant is you need three, and I only needed two. So I don't know why that is, uh, because I'm thinking if I only need two, but in order for to get the maximum grant, I need three heads. Uh, uh, that's going to be more maintenance down the road. And Patty... Uh, does it uh, affect, I guess, uh, would it be more costly to have three than two, I'm assuming, when it comes to energy? Uh, uh, well, it'd probably improve your efficiency. Of course, the upfront installation cost would be bigger because, of course, there's one additional unit. But this has long been the eligibility issue. And are you talking about the Canada Greener Homes Grant? Yes, I am. Okay. Yeah. Just want to make sure what pot of money you're trying to dip into here. Yeah, that's long been the uh, the issue with getting the maximum uh, grant dollar is for it to be three. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, to the to the consumer, it's going to cost them more money in the in the long run. You know what I'm saying? On uh, maintenance when these units come off warranty. And do you know? Uh, I just look for clarification. Do you know if it's going to be? Uh, did you say it's going to be more for your hydro bill to have three than two? No, you should be paying less. You should be more energy efficient when you have the appropriate installation in place. And so. Uh, the maximum, if I remember all this correctly, in the far as far as the loan goes, is forty grand interest free over ten years, right? Yeah, no, I'm more or less uh, just looking, I'm looking at the. I'm not looking at the loan. I'm just looking at the uh, rebate for just the units itself. Okay. That, that when they did the uh, audit, that's basically what I was all, uh, what I was told that I I needed. Yeah, maximum grant five thousand dollars. That's with the three installed. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Just look for that clarification, Patty. So, no uh, Yeah, but anyway, thanks for your time. Appreciate yours, Leonard. Thanks for the call. Yeah, take care and have a great day. You too, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go and take a break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. The first Holocaust survivor event since the pandemic began starts out, pardon me, happens on May the 7th at 6.30 p.m. at the St. John's Convention Center. Join us on line number three is Rabbi Chernitsky. Good morning, Rabbi. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? Excellent today. Thanks for asking. How are you? Best kind, as I say over here. Love to hear it. So what are, what's going to happen? Before we get into uh, Ms. Myers, who will be the keynote speaker at the uh, Holocaust survivor event, what else will be happening uh, at, that, at that event? So the event is all about her. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll introduce her. I always share a message. We're also going to have Minister Byrne uh, speaking. Uh, the provincial government has helped us put this event together. It's quite expensive to do, and uh, we're honoring uh, Minister Byrne also to share some words. So I'll introduce him. He'll introduce the speaker. Uh, the, then uh, Mrs. Myers will speak. We'll have Q and A. And uh, that's what it is. So at these events, I'll see if I can ask this question the way I intend to. So is the goal or the intended outcome for continued awareness, to never forget what happened during the Holocaust, or what would you like people to take away as the message? No, what he says is correct. The, this is the main message, uh, continued awareness, uh, in particular in a time when we've seen hatred proliferate, especially through the Internet. You know, the world of hate and hate crimes, even in this country, seems to be getting more and more problematic, whether it be against Chinese Canadians during the pandemic, whether it be against Muslims, whether it be against Jewish people in the country. What are you seeing in this province and what are we seeing nationally? Yeah, it's definitely getting worse. Uh, that's an unfortunate reality. Um, I've said many times that, you know, with the social media today, I think there's just more accountability that nobody could just make a statement and... Uh, and uh, be untouched. People will call out those racist, uh, uh, you know, hateful uh, statements, etc. But it's definitely getting worse. Uh, I think Newfoundland, that uh, used to enjoy um, a lot less of that, it's not the new. The, you know, it's this is not the old Newfoundland. Uh, if you know Philip Reitman, um, the Holocaust survivor, he lived here for for many decades, and uh, he he ended up here right after the war. And he was so grateful to Newfoundland for giving him hope back in humanity after the war that, you know, he was staying in strangers' homes. People were were, were uh, just letting him, you know, uh, sleep in their houses without knowing who he was. And I can't say that that's lost, but we are heading in the opposite direction, unfortunately. 
I had the good fortune of meeting and interviewing Mr. Reitman on uh, several occasions. So what do people use to fuel their hatred of Jews? And what's the, what's the message you'd like to bring forward? Because, you know, there are some built-in anti-Semitic issues in this world, whether it be things surrounding the World Economic Forum, whether it be things surrounding the boogeyman that is George Soros, and all those things that go on and on. What do people point at that they say justifies their distrust or their dislike of Jewish people? Yeah, I think you just said it. Uh, you know, there's, um, you know, there's about people in every community. Um, uh, you know, the Jewish community is not uh, exempt from issues that affect any other community. And it's to generalize. You know, the the issue as a whole is uh, quite complex. You know, we're always the, the, the scapegoat. We're a minority. It's to blame. And, uh, you know, there's also people that are very wealthy. So, you know, somebody that's looking to, again, to blame someone or to um, to spew hate. Again, we are uh, always an, an, easy, an easy target uh, that way. And what I would say is don't demonize me. Talk to me. We could always have a conversation. You know, uh, somebody has an idea. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. There's nothing wrong with asking, hey, I heard that Jews own all the banks. Is that true? Well, it's not true, but I'm happy to have a conversation with you. So instead of demonizing, generalizing, talk to us. We are people just like you. Rabbi, I appreciate making time for the program. Give the folks the details. And is there an associated cost? And if people can't afford it, is there protection for them? Okay, so there is a cost. Just because there are costs involved with the program, I wish we could just do it free. Um, so right now the tickets are $25 plus fees for general admission, $10 plus fees for seniors and students. So anybody who can't afford it, I would tell them to contact me directly. Okay, um, you could uh, send me an email, rabbinewfoundland.gmail.com. That's an easy way to get to me. Uh, or, you know, you could just uh, Google us, Chabad of Newfoundland. C-H-A-B-A-D off Newfoundland. You'll find us on Google. You'll find us on social media. Just send us a message. I'm happy to work with you. Do what I can. Um, prices are going up. For those who could afford it, prices are going up on Monday. Right now we have the early uh, bird pricing. To buy the tickets, you can just call the Mary Brown's box office or go to the shortened website we made, bit.ly forward slash Courage lives altogether, lowercase, and get the tickets. Uh, without stating the obvious that Miss uh, Myers is a Holocaust survivor, what can you tell us about her? I know she's a 93-year-old lady. So she um, she lived in France, and when the Nazis invaded, she, her mother and brother went into hiding, and they had to uh, move from place to place. Um, you know, there were some righteous amongst the nations, um, that uh, were helping them hide, and they they had to uh, they had to move around once the Nazis were were coming to get them. So it should be you know a fascinating evening. They were going from place to place, always with the fear of being caught at any moment. You know, a slip of the tongue, somebody who says the wrong thing, and they would have been caught and, and killed. I appreciate the time this morning, Rabbi. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Take good care. That's yeah. uh, Rabbi Chernitsky talking about the first Holocaust survival event since the pandemic began. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to our old and gas friend, uh, Rob Strong. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. And always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. It's certainly my pleasure. Where would you want to start this morning, Rob? Boy, I don't know. There's been so much happening since we last chatted. I don't know where to start. 
let me, I guess, start about the OTC, which is the Offshore Technology Conference handled every year in Houston. This year, there are some 45 companies from Newfoundland going with over 100 delegates. And, Patty, this is a trade show of all trade shows. There's in excess of, of uh, 1,200, 1,400 exhibitors, and they're exhibiting everything from BOP stacks to new supply vessels to uh, wellhead structures to FPSOs. So it's going to be very interesting from the Newfoundland perspective because... As you know, we're looking at a potential development for Bader Nord, which will be a, a FPSO, and we'd like to, at least I would, I can't wait to get down there again. This will be my 30th trip, by the way, so I've been gone for a long time. But I can't wait to get and see some of these models of these FPSOs to get an understanding of exactly what goes in it, what the top sides looks like, what the subsea looks like. So that's... Um, that's pretty exciting, and as I say, there's, a, there's still interest in uh, from Newfoundland companies in oil and gas. We haven't all switched to wind as of yet. Of course not. Uh, so, you know, that FPSO uh, scheduled to be built up for Beta North is absolutely behemoth, massive, uh, when compared to, say, for instance, the Terra Nova. Let's talk about the Terra Nova FPSO for a second. Are you hearing any more about it? Because we know it was scheduled to be in Spain for seven months. It dragged down to 13 months. Workers from this province were going back and forth to Spain. They floated back here, and lo and behold, there it is in Bull Arm. Work has to be redone. Additional work has to be done. Uh, Suncor, pardon me, has stopped giving us updates as to when it'll be resuming production. What more do we know? Actually, I, 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 like a lot of people, were amazed at the response that Suncor gave that, yes, this this week about how long it's going to be in there and, and, and why it's going to be there. I don't know much more than that. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of work left to be done. I'm hearing it could be, and this is just street gossip, and I'm hearing it could be up to the end of June before it gets back on location. And so we're losing that production. And people, people can argue and say, oh, yes, but the oil is still in the ground. But we don't know what the price that oil is going to be if, if we postpone for three or four months. For instance, oil today is, what, $84 a barrel. So it's, it's a volatile market. So the quicker we can get back out there, the quicker they can produce, the quicker the province can get uh, more royalties, and the quicker the supply boat operators and the crews of the supply boats and the helicopters and the supply base and the trucking and the blah, 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 the quicker they can all get back to work. It, to me, it's amazing that you can spend $500 million dollars send it to Spain, have to have 150 Newfoundlanders go over to Spain to, to help finish the job, bring it back here, stick it in Conception Bay for a month, and now stick it out in Bay, up, out at uh, Bull Arm. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. The interesting thing, Patty, is that the Sea Rose next year is scheduled for a similar, and, and obviously no two FPSOs are identical, but they're talking about 70, 70 days of downtime. Obviously, it can't be taken out of the water. We don't have a dry dock big enough. But maybe maybe Sonova should look at, at the Terra Nova experience, and maybe we can just take it, or they can take it, over to Spain, or, or there's three yards pre-qualified, take it over to Europe, take it out of the water, do what you got to do, and maybe bring it back to Newfoundland and do the work, do the topside work. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a lesson. 
question here. I don't know. I don't know. And let's not forget, you know, there was a, some thought not so long ago that they would cease producing out at that particular oil-producing facility with the FPSO. So there was an ownership shakeup. Suncor took a bigger stake. And then, most importantly, I think, and you mentioned royalties, the government threw in $200 million cash. And then there was $300 million of royalty relief. So getting back to production is mostly about the 800 jobs directly or indirectly associated with that field as opposed to the royalty because we've given them a huge relief. So I wonder were there any caveats about timelines to get back out there and if and when you know more work should be done here in the future in relationship with Suncor, whatever the case may be, because this has a wide-reaching implication, not only for those 800 people and their families, but for their provincial coffers. You're right, and I stand corrected on the royalties. I, f- I neglected to mention the fact that, yes, there's $300 million of royalty relief given. So uh, should we be excited? I guess it's, it's, I guess it was the jobs, Patty, that, yeah. that prompted the investment by uh, by government uh, and not necessary royalties, although I don't know what the total royalties would be over 10 years, whether it would exceed the $300 million or not, but... Uh, you're you're on the ball, sir. You corrected me on that one. Oh, I, I wasn't trying to do that. I was just you know <laughs> picking up on the royalty issue because that is a big one for the province and consequently for the rest of us. Uh, what can you tell us about the upcoming land sale? What kind of parcels are available? What do we know about them? Wow, you won't believe you won't believe the size of this one. Uh, I have it in front of me, and it's seven million two hundred and twenty-two thousand hectares. And for those of us, and I'm included in this, for those of us that don't know what 17 million, 7 million hectares, it's 18 million acres of land. And that's just for, that's for 28 parcels in what's known as the Eastern Newfoundland District, which includes uh, Shandark and Flemish Pass and a, and a little bit of the Orphan Basin. So there's a whole whack of acreage I've never seen in my 40 years. I've never seen so much acreage being offered. But I think it's typical of what's going on around the world is that oil companies are anxious and governments are anxious to get as much oil produced as quickly as they can over the next 30, 40 years. So the CNLOPB is offering all this land, and a lot of it's been offered before and reverted back to the Crown. Most of us have, most of it has had seismic shot, shot on it, so there's a good feel for what it is. And, and then it's down in what we call the southeastern block as well. There's another 12 million acres of land out for bid. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't know how many bids we're going to get, but I guess if we get any bids, it's a positive. But uh, it's one heck of a lot of land being offered for sale, that's for sure. Massive. Uh, absolutely monstrous uh, uh, parcel of land. What can you tell us about, we don't know when there's going to be business sanction coming from Equinor regarding Bayda Nord. There's so many interesting and complicated issues that have to be settled or solved there in those negotiations. But opportunities on shore, whether it be at Argentia or from use. Don't know about Fermuse. Obviously, Bull Arm is is a potential for topside fabrication, hookup, and commissioning. Uh, the the right now the sub C component we think is is capped. At least it was captive in the last framework agreement signed back in 2019. So the sub C is captive, and the sub C for Beta Nord is probably one of the more expensive 
expensive and extensive subsea developments anywhere in the world. It's been reported to be in excess of $750 million. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that $750 million will be spent in Newfoundland because including that amount is some sophisticated equipment, blow-up preventer stacks, flow lines, and things like that that we want built. But we do know that bids have gone in for that that component or that part of the development, and that is captive to Newfoundland. But as to the top sides, we're still anxiously awaiting some decision, some outcome of the discussions that are going on between the province and Equinor vis-a-vis the amount of topside fabrication. I'm a firm believer that we can be do we we can do uh, some of the top sides here in Newfoundland. When you look at you know when you and I, I'm tired of saying this, but you know when you look at the sea rows, when you look at 100% of the top sides for the sea rows being done in Marystown, and I think some 60% of the top sides for the Terranova development being done in Bullarm, I see no logical reason that why we can't why we can't build some of the top sides in Bullarm. It's we we've got a world class facility out there. It was built not only just to build GBSs, but also for top sides. We have the workforce for sure. I really don't understand why. At least I'm assuming that Equinor is saying we don't want to build much in Newfoundland besides subsea. We know they're committed to that, but I don't understand why our government is not standing firm and why uh, why Energy NL is not standing firm. I haven't heard a public peep from that organization, which I've been part of for 35 years or so, I haven't heard a public, now they may be supporting it privately, but I haven't heard a public peep from Equinor, or from Equinor, sorry, from Energy New and Newfoundland about their support for Newfoundland fabrication. And yet of their 450 members, there's probably 200 members which, which, which would benefit directly because it's also, Patty, it's also not the direct jobs, you know. People say, oh, the wellers and the pipe fitters and electric but guess what? If you if you give if you give a pipe fitter or a welder or electrician three years of employment, he's going to make he or she is going to make a, a fair bit of money, and that money filters down into the community. So he comes home in his time off, and or she comes home in her time off, and decides to build an extension on the house. So he goes to the lumber store and buys some lumber that generates in the trucking company that delivers the lumber to the house. So you can't just think of direct jobs related to topside. You have to think of the full employment picture that would result. So uh, I've got my fingers crossed that that, that the province will uh, push hard. And, uh, you know, Equinor is flush with cash. I think I read somewhere the other day they got about $20 billion in the bank. And they have in the past reported that, hey, our costs of Beta North, 35 maybe $40 a barrel. And uh, it's now selling at $84 a barrel. That's not a bad markup. Not bad at all. Rob, as usual, really appreciate your time. And you're right, there's an economic multiplier has to be added to all of those jobs, what that means to other well, people. We've looked at it from the production stage, stage, but nobody's really looked at it from the construction stage. And I think it's it's time someone's quantified the actual economic impact of, of the fabrication jobs. Other than that, sir, the only other, two other two quickies for you. The Stena Ice Max, a 10-year-old world-class ice-strengthened DP dynamically positioned, which means it holds location without anchors. Uh, drill ship, it's on its way. It'll be here in seven days and 19 hours. We'll come to Bay Bulls to be provisioned and head out to drill the BP well at Ephesus. 
a well that Jim Keating at at Nalcor or Oilco is estimating somewhere between one and five billion barrels. So I'm pretty excited about seeing that. Once again, those numbers are almost uh, difficult to wrap your mind around, but they're enormous. Once again, Rob, always now appreciate I the time. I got to pick your brain for one minute, okay. knowing you know a little bit about gas. There is a supply vessel in the harbor called the CM Symphony, and written on the side of it, it's just down behind Atlantic Place, and written on the side of it is LNG battery powered. Patty, you've, you've had some experience in, 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 in gas and compressed natural gas and LNG. How do you, how are they going to be provisioned? If, if, the, if the vessel is running off LNG, we don't have any LNG facility here in Newfoundland. I mean, we, we, we know that, that LNG really is, is, is taking natural gas and, and, and chilling it down to, what, 150, is it, something like that? Yeah, thereabouts, yeah. And shrinking it to one-eighth hundredth of its limit or of its capacity, and then when you, reach it, when you bring it back to ambient temperature, it expands. But I, I, I can't seem to find out. Maybe, maybe some of your listeners can call in. I can't seem to figure out how they're going to run that vessel for three or four months on LNG if there's no if you can't reprovision your LNG sources that's an excellent question that I have no answer to but it's a, a fair observation it's one thing to say you're powered or fueled by one source or another quite another to be able to get your hands on it well you sir as I say have had some experience in that area so do some sniffing around I will and give us a report will do thanks Rob okay Pat take, take care, care. alright bye bye alright let's take a break when we come back we're going to be raising the roof for Barry on the 6th of May up in Bay Bulls at the Regional Lifestyle Centre what's that about we'll find out from Jennifer Trainer with Celtic Connection right after this welcome back to the program let's go to line number 2 say good morning to Jennifer Trainer. she's with the Celtic Connection good morning Jennifer you're on the air Good morning, Patty, and how are you on this lovely Friday? I'm doing very well. I'm very pleased it's Friday as well. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Flat out today for, for the reasons I've just mentioned. Yes, indeed. Tell us about Barry. First off, who's Barry and what's going on? I know who he is, so but Barry, I'm sure listeners maybe don't. I know, yes, because we've crossed paths numerous times. Uh, Barry Kenny, the, from the lovely community of Furryland, has been uh, a part of Celtic Connection for our existence and will be celebrating 31 years this summer. Um, recently, Barry found out that he requires open-heart surgery, and he will be flying out of province to have um, that done. So because of that, um, I think it was we were prepping a rehearsal for Patty's weekend, and Glenn, Scott, and I, you know, we said, okay, well, you need this done. Like, okay, we got you, you know, because in our existence, we've, you know, we've played many a fundraiser for numerous people and organizations, but now it's a different perspective. Um, Barry needs our help. So when we were at rehearsal, like, no, we're totally going to run with this. So I started uh, reaching out once I got the go-ahead and everything was kind of confirmed with, with Barry and his family. Uh, on March the 20th, I reached out to um, a venue. I reached out to all the musicians that I, I know. And I can assure you that my, I'm not am I only humbled and my heart is full, but I, everybody that I reached out to said, yes, what can we do? So in six hours on March the 20th, I had a date. I had a venue and I had the lineup and the lineup by far is so it's just like it gives me a Balarney Stone vibe because again when we started that was kind of like our mainstay that was the hub people circulated through the Balarney Stone so the the listing of which who are playing um, kind of reflects that and um, 
you know, we got the Navigators. We have Masters Men, um, the Irish Descendants. We got Bob Taylor and Carl Peters. Um, we have Black Gold. Um, and, and of course, ourselves, we're going to be playing. There's going to be some special guests kind of thrown in amongst it all as well. And I would like to say that the lovely Greg Smith will be hosting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's going to be quite the event. And a few ticket spins, and you know, it never ceases to amaze me. The arts community rallies around each other and other causes, even outside the arts community, every single time without fail. It really is amazing. It is amazing, and not until you're into, like, again, we've we've been, you know, on the roster of being performers, you know, to showcase and to add uh, to whatever gravity we could for for an event. But it's a really different perspective being on this side of her and reaching out because of. And, and it's so true, Patty, because people are willing to help in however they can. And so we launched this early this morning, and, I mean, my Facebook and the board members' Facebook were all kind of blown up. But it just goes to show that people are, are heartfelt, like, what can we do? What can we do? Can we make sound? I had a lady say, okay, I'll make 500 sandwiches, <laughs> you know, because we're, we're having it at the Lifestyle Center in Bay Bulls. And so fitting to have it on the shore. Because, again, we, you know, we played that venue quite often. The Southern Shore has been really sweet and, and, and adorable to us. And, you know, uh, speaking of the shore, the Southern Shore Breakers, they've reached out. And way to go, boys, giver. Um, so... We, we collectively are coming together to have a beautiful planned event on May the 6th. And I must add as well that May the 6th is Barry's 50th birthday. So, you know, we got people coming out that haven't, you know, been on the stage for a while that are showcasing and just, you know, adding to the, the beauty of the event, which no doubt is going to be wonderful. I think it sounds great. Congratulations to you for putting this all together. And for everyone else who came on side, all the bands, Greg, and there's going to be some ticket spins, ticket spins and the like out there. So I think this is brilliant. And I wish nothing but the best to Barry. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's listening and his family as well. Uh, Patty, I want to thank you because we, this is our, my first media drop and uh, it is now. Now now we are on. Now we are going with it. We're going to run. We're going to run till May the 6th. <laughs> Go for it, Jennifer. Thanks for making time. Break a leg. Thanks a lot, Patty. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Take good care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Jennifer Trainer with the Celtic Connection. That's an awesome lineup. No question. We wish Barry nothing but the very best of health. Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this hour on line number one. Good morning, Megan Hollett. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks so much for taking my call today. Happy to do it. What's on your mind? Uh, Patty, I just wanted to give a big shout-out and a big praise and thanks to everybody that is volunteering in our province. Of course, today I'm calling in uh, with regards to Ordinary Spokes. That's a bicycle organization for folks that may not be aware. We're a nonprofit community cycling organization based in St. John's. Uh, we have a DIY or do-it-yourself cycling repair hub and a resource center. We sell refurnished bikes. Um, we also hold events, and, and it's all to promote cycling as a means of transportation and, and bikes as a tool for social change. So I wanted to say a big thank you to everybody that is involved with our organization over the years. We're going into our 14th year, and it's all volunteer-based. And, of course, with this week being National Volunteer Week, I wanted to recognize everybody that's been a part of our organization. Where, are, where is organi- uh, pardon me, Ordinary Spokes? Yep, yeah, our, our actual address is 151 Empire, where our door is on Bonaventure. And so this is a repair shop like any other repair shop, just so happens to be a not-for-profit? 
absolutely. Yeah, we're DIY, like do it yourself. So that makes it a little bit more unique. Um, so basically, folks come in. Um, there are tools that are there for people to use. There's uh, recycled and new parts that we sell. Um, and basically, folks look through the books, ask their peer questions, um, a lot of YouTube, and figure out how to repair stuff themselves. So is that what's involved inside the envelope of Cyclist Resource? Absolutely. Yeah, we do that. We also hold outreach events. So um, sometimes we'll go to different community centers like Buckmaster Circle or the Association for New Canadians. Um, and we also hold pop-up events there to help uh, people learn a little bit more about their bike, how to repair things, things like that. So do you have an ongoing call for people who have some experience in repairing bicycles to be part of this organization? We do. Thank you, Patty, for saying exactly that. We are happy to take new volunteers, especially folks who are mechanically inclined. We'll be opening up our shop again in May. We'll be open on Wednesday evenings, and we would love to have more volunteers at all times. There's such a demand for it, especially in recent years. Um, people can find us at Ordinary Spokes um, through lots of different social media, so Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can just search Ordinary Spokes. You can also find us through email. You can email us at ordinaryspokes at gmail.com. Now, I know you're one of the driving forces at Ordinary Spokes, but I'm just racking my brain. Do I remember or recall that this was initially started by a pair of brothers? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't believe so. Okay. Uh, we've been around for 14 years, um, and many for over the years it's been a lot of master's students that have been through. Um, yeah, a lot of different folks have cycled through, <laughs> pardon the pun, over the years. Um, and so I've been involved for the past, I've uh, been involved with the board at least for the past two years, but for many years from Water Street to Longs Hill um, to, yeah, a lot of different places I've been going to get my brakes adjusted or all those kinds of things. I know you've had a relationship with the tool library, but where do you get all the replacement parts? You know, we have been ordering stuff um, through larger organizations because we have so many people that come through. You know, for example, you know, we hosted over 70 repair sessions in the past two years, and, and we've refurbished over 150 bikes. Um, so we do order things through wholesale. Also, um, you know, there's different organizations and companies, including um, Canary. Um, they have donated uh, tools to us extremely kindly. The cycling community, honestly, in St. John's, and I would say across the province, is pretty tough and so we all like to support each other. Cycling is a fascinating conversation across the country. I know there's a mayoral race in Toronto, and some of the candidates have some really bizarre positions on cycling. What does it take to make the place more friendly? Because it's one thing to be able to ride on what people might call a pedestrian path or a bike lane down, say, for instance, on uh, Prince Philip Parkway. But cycling around the city, as someone who does like to ride his bike, can be pretty dicey. So what are some fundamental steps we can do to make it a bit more, uh, in, in, to incentivize people to get on their bikes? Because there is a risk factor, especially in this city. Absolutely, and I'm glad you asked that. There's so many things, you know, from really small to really large, and actually just yesterday we had a conversation with folks at the City of St. John's about these kinds of things. This could mean, for example, when we partner with um, the library, the local library here on the Avalon Peninsula, to provide bike pumps so that people can, if you do own a bike, maybe you don't know anything about your bike, and you don't even know how to put air in your tire, or you don't have a pump, using that kind of stuff and finding that kind of thing. Um, it also means for us as an organization holding events like Fems and Thems. So there's a bike shop space that is welcome to folks that identify as female or uh, gender nonconforming and having those kinds of spaces that you can come in, ask questions, um, fix things with your bike, play around with it, get to know other people. But it also means, you know, being a cyclist and being out and, and taking up space. Some people prefer and feel safer to ride on shared use paths 
and other folks are happy to ride in the street. So, you know, being out and making that little change every day, whether you go once a week, whether you go once a month, whether you're a daily commuter, it all plays a part in it. And, you know, personally, I'm very excited to see what will come uh, with the Kelly's Brook Shared Use Path as we see a lot of talks about the 2025 Canada Games that are coming here. Well, part of the benefit of that is the infrastructure programs that are going to be coming to St. John's, and we're going to be, you know, having this benefit for many years to come. So seeing the Kelly's Brook Shared Use Path as part of the Canada Games complement is a really welcome addition, in my personal opinion. I thought it was a, a pretty oddly controversial issue for shared paths or for the shared trailways because it's kind of the feature most everywhere in the country but around here it got really contentious very very quickly very emotional uh megan appreciate the time congratulations to all the good folks whether it be their supporters of the board members the volunteers and ordinary spokes Absolutely. Thank you so much, Patty. And one last thing I'm going to mention, if anybody is looking for an affordable bike over the next little while, I just want to remind you that on Saturday, April 29th, so that's not this Saturday, it's the following Saturday, we'll be having a sale at 151 Empire. And so whether you're looking for your first bike or whether you're looking for a commuter, all of our bikes are very affordable. Appreciate this. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, there's Megan Holler with Ordinary Spokes. Uh, very quickly before we get to the break, there's some uh, autism town halls coming up. So on April the 22nd, that's tomorrow at the uh, Community Town Hall in Stephenville at the Days Inn. You can take advantage of that opportunity there. Also on the 22nd, we know, pardon me, scroll down a little further. Then on the 23rd, the next day in Cornerbrook at the Greenwood Inn. See if I can find any furthers here. No, that's the two uh, autism town halls that we have to share that information with you. And of course, you can simply go to the uh, Autism society's website which is asnl.ca for all the information don't go away welcome back to the program we were told in june of 2021 that there was a partnership being forged between paradise cbs mount pearl and st john's to form this regional economic development agency at the 11th hour mount, uh, mount pearl pulled out but they are forging ahead with paradise cbs and st john's join us online number uh, two is the mayor of the city of st john's that's danny breen mayor breen you're on the air hey good morning patty how are you very well sir how about you this morning very good. I'm not going to ask you to speak on behalf of Mayor Aker and Mount Pearl, but any further understanding as to why they didn't join forces with the other three communities? They say they're just going to go on their own and have maybe a wait-and-see approach, but any other details you can share? Uh, no, but uh, but I, I can tell you that when we uh, when we discussed this, we hired a consultant. We talked to many different groups uh, across the country, the federal government. Uh, it, we're we're behind other uh, other regions of the country that have these um, types of uh, partnerships in place, and uh, they've uh, they've matured and they've expanded. So uh, we felt we needed to put this together. What this agency, it doesn't mean that you don't have any other economic development initiatives happening in your in your municipality. Uh, we still have initiatives that will be ongoing, uh, as will CBS and Paradise. So, But this is a way that we can take some of the resources that we're putting into economic development now and focusing it on the region and, and collective projects that we want to do uh, into the future. What are, your, what are the focus areas? Well, the focus areas are certainly going to be in the uh, in the ocean industries, uh, what we call the STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. 
uh, also looking at uh, startup uh, startups and and how we can nurture the startup um, um, area uh, when you look at the successes of Verifin and Colab others um, and see that how they've given this uh, a bit of momentum here now with new startups so we have to see how the municipalities can uh, can encourage that um, you know the focus will be on the ocean industries that's a big part of our economy here uh, it's uh, it's a huge opportunity for us and you build on your strengths uh, as we move forward so we're going to be def- we're going to be identifying some of the potential uh, that's out there for us and and see where we want to get involved as we move forward and at that time as we identify opportunities we decide on whether to scale up the operation or or not how does competition continue to play a role because of course the various mayors will have their keen focus on their own city or their own town but inside the envelope of collaboration cooperation what role does competition play well, you know, the competition here locally, uh, you know, if a company is set up in, in one of the municipalities, the people working in that company are, are, could be living in a, another municipality or or even outside the uh, the region. Our boundaries are so close here uh, that we really have to look at our competition versus the Halifaxes, the um, Aberdeen, uh, Stavanger, uh, the rest of Canada. So we've got to get more on the national, international stage and uh, uh, try to invest the investment into the province that we can. You know, you mentioned Halifax, and they've gone through an amalgamation process a decade or more ago. Does this set the stage for more and more cooperation beyond simply the economic drivers, foreign investment, and, and the like? You know, whether it be with uh, public infrastructure or public transit or what have you, because there's lots of relationships where we do have a distinct overlap. Some of the pushback is maybe sentimental versus pragmatic. Well, Patty, you know, we do, uh, we're probably the most integrated uh, area of the province right now. We share a fire department. We have a landfill uh, that, uh, that services eastern Newfoundland. Uh, we have wastewater and water is, uh, is done through the, the city, uh, city and through a board that we have in place. Um, now economic development, and, and I think there's always areas that you can look. One area that I've always said that I, that we could do better in uh, in sharing resources is in recreation, and uh, I think uh, I think that's an area that uh, that that we should also be uh, be considering. But uh, we've got to do we've we've got to build partnerships, and we've got to work together uh, for the betterment of the uh, of the community and taxpayers. What inside of recreation would you be looking at? Well, I think, you know, sometimes when you're looking at building uh, facilities that uh, we have been more strategic uh, regionally in those and sharing the cost. These buildings are quite expensive. If you look at the Muse Centre, um, you know, that's a 30, I think it's a $32 million uh, replacement on the on the existing Muse Centre. Fortunately, we, we were able to fund uh, uh, almost all of that, I think, from the uh, gas tax money from the federal government. So there are federal cost-sharing programs that you can that you can use to get into these uh, these projects uh, but remembering too that you still have to pay your share and you have to uh, borrow to, to pay that share so you got to be mindful of your of your debt and your debt servicing costs on those when you talk about nurturing the municipality's startup sector how does that differ from the startup sector in general or what exactly does well, that mean 
Well, I think, uh, you know, one, one project that we're working on right now is a creative city concept. And so uh, when you look at the uh, the creativity in the in the city, you look at um, the film industry, for example. Uh, what is it that we can do uh, together to, to help the film industry and help that uh, keep keep the momentum that it has right now and, and keep that going? Patty, uh, if you've been, and, and you're well familiar with the film industry here in the, here in the city and in the province, uh, when you see one of those uh, productions on location, uh, there's a significant amount of, uh, of economic activity happening with that. Um, and uh, we do a very good job. We have a good basis here, and that's just one area that I think we can expand. The financial contribution breakdown, I, I assume, is simply based on population. CBS in there with 16.5%, Paradise 13.5%, and the city with 70% of investment. But in the governance board, there will be equal representation. That board will be in place by no later than the end of the year. What would be the mandate or the specific role of the governance board? So we're going to be looking at the uh, at the governance board as going outside uh, municipal um, uh, municipal uh, council members, uh, looking to the business community, looking to the uh, the, the various sectors for participation uh, in that board. The important thing to remember about the the money that we're putting into it now is that's existing money. It's existing money that we're spending on economic development. We just think that together we can spend it a, a bit more wisely and a bit more effectively. When it boils down, let's say we go ahead and attract some company, bring some foreign investment here, whether it be for ocean technology or otherwise. Does that then bring on the nitty-gritty of where the jobs will be, where people will choose to live, or how does that work? Because it's one thing to bring it to the region, but of course there's a big upside to property taxpayers and expand the tax base for one community or another based on where they land, whether it be with their commercial operations or whatever the case may be. Patty, you know those companies make those decisions uh, ma- mainly on uh, what what is in their best business interest to do so. Uh, I think the point of this is that if a company sets up in Paradise or uh, or CBS or St. John's or Mount Pearl, uh, there is a benefit to the whole region from doing that. So rather than argue about where which which municipality it will be in, uh, we we do that through where uh, through our various other um, uh, various other programs. Programs. But we need to get the investment here. We need to get it into the economy. You could have 300 employees working in a company in, uh, that's located in Industrial Park in, say, uh, Paradise or in, uh, or in St. John's. And uh, they're living all over the region. So they're, buy- they're shopping, they're spending their money, and they're buying houses in the region. So it's just that our communities are so close together that uh, we'll go doing, this, uh, doing it jointly uh, is the most effective way way for us to uh, to improve. How do you incorporate outside entities into this uh, hopeful positive economic outcome here, like, for instance, ACOA or SeaCor or the Marine Institute, if we're talking about uh, ocean technology? How do you bring those into the fold? Because they've got their ear to the ground. They know who some of the players are. They may indeed have already dipped their toe into the water with some of these conversations. How do you bring them in? Uh, they're a critical part of the piece, and that's the partnerships that we have to develop through the region. And we do it now through the city. We have a, a very good working relationship with Memorial University and with the Marine Institute, uh, in, in particular there. Uh, so we do that work. ACOA funded the beginning of this project for us, uh, and we'll be looking at other opportunities with ACOA and with the provincial government as well. But I can tell you, Patty, and, and you know this, 
Memorial University is a critical part of our economic de- economic development strategy in this province. It's it's important for the economy, and it's uh, it's a relationship that uh, needs to be strong. Uh, very quickly, so in preparation for the 2025 games, you know, what's the status of those preps? Because that comes around very very quickly. You know, there was concerns with the Aquarine and exactly the timeline for that to be done. I don't think any work has been started yet. Now the track and field facility, which would be where the old track and field facility was, uh, they're at Memorial University or the Aquarina ground. So where are we inside the pool? Yeah, so we just uh, uh, awarded the tender last week for Um, and Sport Excellence Building. So that's uh, uh, that should be underway very shortly. I think uh, next week or the week after, we're going to be announcing further details on that. Uh, the work at the Aqua Arena is with the provincial government and the university. They, uh, they're taking care of that piece of that, so I'd have to defer to them uh, to get the status on that. We also uh, issued... Um, uh, work on uh, approved work for Greenbelt. The uh, the tennis uh, tennis facility uh, is uh, going to be refurbished. There's other projects such as beach volleyball courts to be built in uh, in Paradise. There's upgrades to the Caribou Complex, etc. That are all being done as part of our um, in in other projects. So the work is underway. The committee is uh, is working hard. They're uh, they're staffing up now as we we get closer to that date. And uh, but you're right, Patty. There's a lot of work to be done, and uh, there's also 5,000 volunteers needed for that, so uh, that that process will be starting very soon as well. I'll be one of those volunteers for a week for sure. I'm looking forward to that. And you mentioned Greenbelt. Just want to throw out there quickly, remind folks that Greenbelt will be the home of the Jack Hurley Memorial Tennis Tournament this weekend, organized by 15-year-old uh, Declan Walsh. Uh, good to have you on, Mayor Breen. Appreciate the time. Thanks very much, Patty. Have Thank a great you. weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. St. John's Mayor Danny Breen. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the fishery, child care, and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Uh, line number three. So good morning to the executive director at CNL. That's Ryan Cleary. Ryan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. To you and your listeners, thanks as always, sir, for taking the call. Happy to do it. What's on your mind this morning? Well, Patty, I'd like to speak about the fish price setting system in this province and another example besides snow crab of exactly how it's not working this time in the lobster fishery. So, Patty, just for your information, the information of your listeners, uh, the lobster price in this province is set by a formula. It's set by a formula that the FFAW and processors, they came up with it about 12 years ago. It's called the Erner Barry Formula. Um, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but I have to give a little explanation of this. The formula is based on lobster prices going into the U.S. market that are provided twice a week by what's called the Erner Barry Service. Erner Barry provides intelligence on seafood prices. It's a U.S. company. So back in 2012, when they brought in this lobster pricing formula, it was generally accepted that lobster purchased from the inshore fleet from fishermen one week was shipped out the next But since then, over that period of about 12 years, lobster processors in this province and processors right throughout Atlantic Canada, they've increased their lobster holding capacity. They've built lobster holding tanks all over the place. So what that means, Patty, is that processors can sell lobster to the market later in the year when the lobster prices have risen. The the existing formula doesn't take that into account. So the lobster pricing formula pays fishermen as if their catch is being sold pretty, pretty soon after it's caught in the spring, when the lobster may be kept in holding tanks and sold in the fall for much higher prices. The question that that raises 
is is our lobster fishermen getting a fair market share for the lobster formula? And the bottom line, Patty, is it appears that they are not. With now, the fluctuation this- in price, you know, if the lobster season has to be when it is, what can it actually be done about looking down the road at lobster prices for what the market is uh, able to bear? So are you suggesting that they would get paid X early in the season? And I know Royal Greenland built a massive lobster tank or whatever the right word is. And so if they go to sell it and get a different price in the fall, that there should be a, a further cost sharing there or price a sharing process or something? What we're saying is that the formula, the formula that exists right now pays fishermen as if um, the, the, the lobster that processors are buying is entering the market right then, in the spring. But it's not. Uh, it, again, the, it, it was, this was all brought out by the fish price setting panel, by the way, which, uh, which rolled over the lobster formula from, from last year. But the panel came straight out and said that, that lobster, fishermen are being paid for lobster as if it's going into the market in the spring. But it may not be going out. It, it may be held in tanks and, act, and not actually going to the market until the fall for much higher prices. So fishermen are missing out on that higher price. So what this means is that the, the, the formula that's in place that has been in place for 12 years may not result in a fair market share to the fishermen. So in this case, the formula needs to be totally reviewed and overhauled. The fish price setting panel actually recommended that this month. It made the same recommendation last year, but the provincial government, uh, Labor Minister uh, Davis, who's responsible for this, has yet to act on it. So what I'm doing with you, Patty, is highlighting the fact that the lobster fishermen of this province may not be getting a fair market share for their lobster. That's been pointed out to the province. The province has yet to act. I wrote Bernie Davis this week and said, you need to act on this. You need to determine whether or not fishermen are getting a fair share, and I'm waiting for, re- for a response. But again, this seems to be another example, besides the ongoing crab controversy over crab price, that the, that the fish price setting system in this province is not working. I suppose if you try to rejig this formula, it would also have to include some infrastructure costs, operation costs for those who own those lobster holding tanks, I suppose. Uh, but certainly that's the argument they would make. Uh, just very quickly, I want to pick your brain this, on this snow crab issue just a little bit. Because I know you represent harvesters. I'm sorry, Patty. Before we get to that, can I tell you a way to resolve this, a way to resolve the lobster problem? Sure. Okay. So the panel, which raised this concern this year and last year, it recommended that the pricing formula, the lobster pricing formula, be based on actual receipts that show the prices processors are paid, uh, that paid for the lobster, as well as the time that the lobster enters the market. The receipts would solve this, and actually they're used with the halibut pricing formula. The problem is the Association of Seafood Producers has refused to release the receipts. So if the ASP won't release the receipts and the province won't, won't force them, then, then lobster fishermen cannot be certain they're getting a fair market share and the faith in the pricing system in the lobster pricing formula has been undermined, if all that makes sense. Yeah, I understand the issue. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, quickly before I have to move off to another caller, Ryan. So in the snow crab business, like I've always said out loud that I don't understand the price setting panel. I don't think it works for either side, and I think that's bearing out to be true. But then it's the concept of uh, the Premier's willingness to talk to the union about shipping the crab elsewhere. And I know you represent harvesters, so you're primary concern is not the processing sector but i wonder what the break-even number is to even justify trucking the crab out or shipping the crab out because i know you can just steam from the grounds to another province and sell just can't land it here and have it sold or processed elsewhere 
but are we not looking at a pretty risky situation for the processing sector? And can you even get more profit by shipping around, or does this have more, more to do with some of the standoffishness in the fishery? Because I can't wrap my mind around where the big benefit is here. So what exactly are you asking me? Where's the benefit? Because if I can get 295 versus 220 here, there's got to be some associated cost with getting it to that market. And I know, like even the price setting panel says that the, this is not the right price for crab. But are we not all, all also at the exact same time, maybe making a few extra cents per pound for the harvester? But of course, you're going to have to rely on buyers for other species, including crab and yours, to come here on shore. And you know, the union representing both sides really never made sense to me either. But I don't think we've really assessed what risk we're putting into the industry by shipping out all this crab. Betty, I'll keep this simple. The only way, the only way for the intra fleet in this province, uh, the only clear and transparent way for intra harvest in this province to, to to ensure that they're getting the fairest market price for for their snow crab, is to allow outside buyers to bid on the product. I mean, I think that what it's going to come down to, Patty, is that, first off, the FFAW has to step back. The FFAW may say that they support outside buyers, but in representing plant workers who may be negatively impacted, I think for that reason, because of the conflict, they need to step back. This may take uh, an action whereby the fishermen themselves, owner-operators themselves, take the bull by the horns, fill up a reefer truck full of their catch full of crab and ship it to Boston, ship it to Toronto, uh, and and challenge the law. Because, again, processors can ship live crab in. We can't ship live crab out. The moment that the fishermen try to do that, and that's, this is what it may come down to, if the province tries to arrest them or stop that truck when trucks can come in, but they're saying fishermen can't ship it out, well, then we have a court challenge. It may come down to this. To, to exactly that, but the only way to, unfair, to ensure a fair market share because of all the mistrust in this industry is to have a, a level playing field to allow outside buyers in a complete, transparent, and open market. That's the only way to do it, Patty. That's the only way to move forward with this industry and, and to get rid of the, the distrust and ensure a fair market share. I appreciate the time this morning, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Ryan Cleary. He's the executive director at CNL. Uh, let's keep rolling here. What do you want me to do here, Dave? One or two? You pick. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Rudy Singleton. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well, thanks. How about you? Good, good. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, this being uh, Volunteer Week, Patty, and the and the theme this year being volunteering weaves things uh, weaves us together rather. Uh, I just like to um, publicly acknowledge the the efforts on behalf of people at Emmaus House, which is a, a local food bank, uh, and I want to thank the volunteers who who work tirelessly and endlessly to help people who are some of the most challenged in our society. Absolutely. And, you know, the food bank to me is one of those, you know, it's a distinct failure in governance. It was once a Band-Aid solution. Now it's the go-to for four or five million Canadians day in and day out. It's kind of heartbreaking, even though we're going to thank and congratulate uh, and show the gratitude to the volunteers. But when you step back big picture, it's just amazing in modern-day Canada we have such a reliance on food banks. Uh, Patty, and not only that, uh, you're absolutely right. And what we're seeing, Patty, is, is an increased reliance and and
and it seems like the level of uh, the level of income that is no longer sufficient to to uh, to provide sustenance for a family uh, that that level is is uh, increasing shall we say for want of a better word people who who normally would have been able to make it a few years ago are just having great difficulty today and 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 we see people coming to our door every day and and it's heart-wrenching really patty that it is and you know what do you see so far as the numbers of people willing to be volunteers because there's a volunteer crisis in the country you know and it happens in, in this province as well whether it be pandemic related matters or what have you then the average age of volunteers what do you see uh, we're, we're not having a we're not having a shortage of volunteers, Patty. And there is one uh, feature with our volunteers is that most of us are, are retired people or people near retirement. But uh, the way we get get our volunteers uh, largely is through uh, churches. You know, we're we're an interdenominational group. So if there's a need within a certain group, usually uh, through the uh, through the clergy in the church, they'll reach out and ask for a volunteer. And and we 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 haven't been having a problem getting volunteers. So we're doing quite well in that in that uh, department, Patty. The the, the uh, resources are being strained, but uh, uh, no, the volunteers uh, seem to be uh, seem to be coming along in, in increasingly encouraging numbers. I think that's great. Uh, do you happen to know? Not, don't want to put you on the spot, but the issues surrounding the food bank up at Corpus, uh, Corpus Christi, the St. Vincent de Paul group, they were going to be out of luck with no space, and they were looking for space. Do you happen to know if they had any success? Uh, well, Patty, I'm not. I can't speak to definitively, but I do think what happened was that because the people from uh, from Corpus Christi, uh, their designated church, uh, alternate church, for bottom of a better word, was uh, St. Teresa's, so I think that the food bank uh, effectively went there as well. That's that's my understanding. Yeah, I hope so. so. I, I don't speak, uh, I, I don't speak uh, infallibly on that point now. No problem at all. Rudy, I appreciate the time. I'm sure the other volunteers appreciate the kudos you're offering and hopefully you're enjoying the playoffs oh yes and uh, go Evs go absolutely thanks for okay Patty thanks for that my bye pleasure bye. take care bye bye right, let's take a break when we come back we're going to be speaking with Barry Petney he's the PC member for Conception Bay South about daycare and some of the issues we see in that service don't go away Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for CBS. That's Barry Petten. Barry, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Good. Uh, Patty, I'm calling in uh, to talk, and you have talked about and I've talked about a fair bit as well, and there's a, lot of, been a fair bit of uh, outrage and uptake this past week on this latest incident with daycares uh, with autistic children being sent home due to lack of inclusion workers. And as we all know, that's not acceptable. Uh, you have to find ways of remedying this problem. I mean, I mean, it's fun to say, I mean, I know uh, the minister seems to be avoiding the media, but I know there's a statement come out from the department this past week and basically said there's nothing we can do here. We've made the offers. They've had an opportunity to go train. We've provided, you know, this and that. So basically they're washing their hands of this issue, and that's totally unacceptable. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, any time like this, when you're dealing like, you know, the Churchill case, a prime example, the government done the same thing there in the school district, I should say, I guess, a combination of both. And we've seen what happened there with the human rights. Uh, you know, this is society, 2023, and we have autistic children, and they deserve every bit the same right as any other child. And we have to make things, we have to make things, you know, we, we, we're, we're living in a world of inclusion too, Patty. And uh, if it's not working, we have to find a way to fix it. I'm not going to try to make a clear distinction here, but the Carter Churchill story, of course, is in the government-controlled and operated schools versus maybe some private sector offerings inside the daycare world. Now, there's regulated daycare where government absolutely can put in parameters for inclusion and uh, all of those types of matters. But, of course... 
you know, they play a leadership role here and something has to be done because I think your party and the NDP are absolutely right on this one. This is unacceptable. It's heartbreaking, however people want to term it, because if we're going to go down a path of whether it be in the K-12 system or pre-K and in early childhood education, that children will be treated different based on their diagnosis, whether it be autism or otherwise, then we're setting a really unfair, unlevel playing field that is not good for anybody, including the operators, including the other children in daycare or in the K-12 system. So something has to give. Yeah, no, totally, Patty. And I think what frustrates me, and I think should frustrate a lot of people, is, and forget the politics, you know, your government, your minister, you should come out and speak on these issues. If you don't have an answer to and a solution, that's fine. We'll find a solution. We'll work together to reach out to experts. But to be avoiding the issue, and you're right, it's different in the Churchill case, but there's one thing I'd like to point out, and I've spent a lot of time researching and digging into this childcare issue. Government do, does control these childcare, these regulated childcare operations, to the degree that I just spoke to a childcare operator this morning, actually, in my own district. They just, they own the business. There's their investment, but government are totally in control of everything they do. Oh, for sure. I understand and, that. It's regulators. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so that's why I think this comes back. Even though it's different in the church case, I still think there's similarities. And government can make a, make a difference here. I mean, one thing, Patty, and I've kind of got my head around this recently this morning in another conversation. So the 2017, there's legislative change. You had to have a level one ECE to be able to work in a daycare or childcare in the province. I mean, I know there's regulations that keep them to a certain standard. But what's after ha- happening now as a result of that 2017 change, inclusion workers, which are categorized separately in daycare operations, a lot of great inclusion workers don't have the level one. Some of them are in their 40s, probably 50s. They're not going back to school. They've got no interest back to school. But they're great inclusion workers. And that's what this lady told me this morning in my district. She said, I, I, I take these people into more, but I'm not allowed because they don't have their level one. But they're not going back to school. They've they got no interest. So my argument, I've spoke publicly on this, is lift, lift that regulation from 2017 for a couple of years. Give till we get new, new uh, ECAs out of our CONA and our training. You know, they become registered and they can go to work. To bridge the gap. I mean, I think that's a reasonable solution to, that's something government could do immediately. And I've said, quite frankly, we'd be all over supporting that. Why wouldn't you? I mean, that's that's a, that's one thing government can do here and now. But they got to come out and say something or discuss this issue. And in, in doing so, in doing so, you, you'll give, give give the daycares and everyone time to absorb and get new, new people new people on. Because apparently, what I've also been discovered is, there's a separate funding for inclusion workers and daycares. So when they have an inclusion worker, they have to provide, they have to submit the, into the department for reimbursement for inclusion workers. Not they're not categorized as like any other worker in the childcare, but they're one on one. So it was quite interesting, and it's something that's there's low hanging fruit in my mind that government could easily make this change, and that would make a huge impact. In, on the interim, not as long-term solution, but it will help because we see it in uh, education. I've talked to, and I've talked to department on this one as well. The teachers came to me. Uh, retired teachers can only work 90 days in substituting, and then it affects their pension. So obviously, after 90 days, they're not going to be wanting to be part of it. But government has extended that 90-day term because we're, we're dealing with shortage in teachers, as crisis in teachers, which makes perfect sense. And I, and I actually made a call to the department, the minister's office, and I advocated on behalf of teachers for that. So what's the difference in making the change? this 2017 clause. We're doing it with retired nurses, retired doctors. It's retention. It's, we're dealing with issues. I mean, childcare crisis is real, just like every other crisis we're dealing with right now. And 
and uh, I think that's the easy solution is low-hanging fruit. But the minister got to come out and talk to us. Somebody in the department, the premier, someone in the government got to talk. Because right now it seems to be the opposition, us in the in the NDP, are talking about this, and child care operators are outraged, and families are outraged, but the minister's nowhere to be found. And it's, it's quite absurd, actually. Well, the issue about retired teachers and the 90 days, I think that's the easy one for a short-term uh, help or short-term solve or solution, because you know that they would have had not only the educational training, but they would have been in the classroom environment where there was uh, children with exceptionality. So they have the built-in life experience and professional background to be able to step right in there. Whether we extend it past 90 days or what have you, that's something that could be decided very quickly by the cabinet versus legislative amendments, which would require the house to be open. So I think we can do that first one uh, about retired teachers right away. And we should, because we, we just cannot have this. If the if it boils down to, well, I either have to quit my job or leave the province, how can that be good for anybody? That family, the community, the government, I mean, there's just no win for that to be the outcome for family, one family or another, and apparently there's dozens of them. Yeah, no, I got them in my district too, Patty, and we all, I think we all in the metro area in the, growth, in the big growth areas are dealing with this. You're absolutely right. I mean, moving out of the province is, is a sad statement. I mean, when I heard that politics aside, I just sat down, you know, you can't get your head around this stuff. And when I know there's a solution, and I know it's not to be all in all, but right now it will it will help to pro- help alleviate some of this problem and, and, you know, get these children to proper care. And, and I mean, I, I just, I'm, I'm left speechless, to be honest with you, on a lot of this. And, I, I mean, and I'll say it again. I mean, I'm speechless that the minister or someone in that department well, cannot do better than just send out a statement. And the statement was quite offensive of you. If I was a parent, if I was one of those parents, I would have been totally offended by that statement. And it was just a brush off, you know, we, we've done our part, we're moving on. I, I'm, I'm astounded, actually. So I think government needs to really step up and make uh, fix this problem because it's, 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 it's ridiculous, actually. Appreciate the time, Barry. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Barry Petten, the PC member for CBS. Let's keep rolling. Line number two. Good morning, Max. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Excellent, Max. How about you? Not bad, thanks. Listen, I'm I'm not a fisherman, but I'm about a fisherman's problem. Okay. Um, the the, fish, the lobster fishermen on the south coast of Newfoundland have been fishing lobsters now and shipping them for over a week, and they don't know how much they're getting a pound for them. The merchants are shipping the lobsters and they paid for them, but the lobster fishermen don't know how much they're getting a pound, and they've been fishing for a week. Somebody should talk about that instead of just talking about, uh, you know, Ryan Clever was just talking about a whole bunch of stuff, but he never mentioned that. Well, I didn't even know that was the case, to be honest, Max. Well, that's the case, and and, and every year it's the same thing. The, the merchants are shipping the product out and getting paid for it, but the fishermen don't know how much they're getting a pound for their lobsters. <laughs> it seems like a strange approach because the be-all and end-all is the two factors, isn't it? It's the total level catch, it's your individual quota, and the price per pound, how you decide what you're going to do, when you're going to do it. So that's a real strange setup. I didn't even know that was well, the, the case, Max. Is, I would have brought it up. It's almost like the lobsters, uh, the lobster fishermen are selling their lobsters to the, to, the, uh, to the buyers on consignment. They don't get no money for it. They don't even know. I go over to buy a pound of lobsters from the fishermen. They can't. T- they'll give me the lobsters, but they don't know how much they're going to charge a pound for them because they don't know. Hmm. Is that always the case? That's been the case for the last two or three years. Yes. Okay. Well, if I had to even know that to be the case, I would have uh, broached that with Ryan Cleary or anybody else that we talked to, whether it be from the FFAW or other harvesters themselves. But I certainly do appreciate the information. That's a strange way to do business. Yes, and the fishermen are so frustrated about it, right? Because, like, somebody goes to the boat and wants to buy a 10-pound of lobsters, 
they, they'll give them the lobsters, but they don't know how much they're going to get a pound for them. They got to go back next week or two weeks later, whenever they find out what they say. They're not going to find out what the price is for another week. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you brought that to my attention. I can give that another little whirl around and see if someone can explain the rationale, whether it be from the Association of uh, Seafood Producers or otherwise. But that's uh, important information, Max. I'm glad you made me aware of it. Thanks, Patty. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Have a good day. You too, sir. Bye bye. All right, that's a strange one because you know. I mean, just look at the example of the snow crab. If the price isn't what the harvesters think it needs to be for them to be profitable to go out on the water and all the operational costs associated with it, you would think there's got to be some of that associated with the lobster as well. Anyway, confusing. Let's check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. And there was reference to the LNG-fueled vessel that's down in St. John's Harbor. Uh, and, of course, people are making a very excellent points here. You know, not only that, if you are operating on LNG, you would also have backup diesel generation, marine diesel, to power that vessel. And also, of course, there can be LNG tankers, very much like uh, marine diesel being uh, uh, loaded in at sea. But my question there would be, do we even see any of those in and around our waters, given how few vessels are operated, whether it be dual power with LNG and marine diesel? But good points being made by that crowd. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? When we come back, still a ton of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. Uh, just in reference to something I said off the top of the program, program today regarding the 32 schools that have been sold by the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation to the province so that they remain in the education system. And I made reference to the fact that I'm not sure why the Schools Act didn't just go ahead and do what it was intended to do to protect those schools, because as long as those buildings were used for educational purposes, my understanding was that they were unable to be dealt with, you know, auctioned off, sold, or transferred, or anything of the like. So the emailer who was really quite I think cross about what I said is that you know why would you be against anything that goes ahead to fund the compensation fund for the Mount Cashel victims when of course every single time we talk about this I make sure to add nobody but nobody begrudges the money to the victims at Mount Cashel nobody that might be up to 150 people and a 50 million dollar compensation fund that needs to be created they had come up with some 30 million by selling off churches and rectories parish halls vacant land and what have you and then add this 13 million so they're getting close to the 50 so it's not about begrudging anybody my question was simply about the legislation so if the legislation reads the way it does then how did we even go down a road where the 32 schools were going to be sold back to the province to maintain all the uh the schooling for the k-12 system and no impact on students their families their teachers their administration so that's all i meant by that i was just wondering what the legislation implications were there then there's also i think lots of questions to be asked about the uh, newfoundland labrador english-speaking school district being blended into the department of education not to say it's a bad thing but, you know, when we're told such vague references to the fact that it will do something or other to improve uh, the lot for students, how and what does that even mean? So if there's going to be jobs lost, and you have to imagine there is, so if it was looking for efficiencies or identifying the redundancies, then you would imagine when that happens, maybe some of the savings achieved through that process would be funneled into the system, whether that be to address the teacher shortage or the substitute teacher issue or other resources that can be added inside schools across the province. I suppose that would be the hopeful outcome, but we really don't understand exactly what's going on 
there and how they're going to achieve any improvement for students in the province simply by blending the district into the department. I think similarly, when we know that the amalgamation of the four regional health authorities is happening, they're all going to be operated at the Department of Health Community Services, and there is an oversight board in place as well, a governance board. But we don't even really know exactly what the hopeful outcomes are there. You know, nobody's cheering for anybody to lose their job. But when we talk about right-sizing and ensuring that we only have enough people working for us to execute their departmental role, and that's not anti-work, that's not anti-union, that's just pro-realistic about money and finances and the operations of government. So how that looks and works, we don't know. The big question in many parts of the province will be, where are the jobs going to be? Because if you're up in uh, Labrador Grenfell, or that's not a great example, because they'll have a bit more of a uh, featured role than the other districts, whether it be Central Health or Western Health. So to understand where all those jobs will be, and you know, be the ability to reach out and speak to someone locally where you live, it can't all be centralized in town, for instance. It can't be simply out of the Confederation Building. So some of those questions still remain unanswered, as far as I can tell. Let's go to line number one. Dorothy, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Hello? Hello? Yes, I have to pass on a bouquet today. Okay, go right ahead. I had amazing experience with Choices for Youth. Amazing. Tell us what happened. Organization that helped a family member went on and above anything they had to do. Uh, I And Jim Din's office... Uh, you know, like sometimes people lose faith, but there is places out there that will help the people that need the help. You want to share any of the uh, story itself? Well, I have a family member that was homeless. Okay. And got so bad that we didn't know if she was going to be walking the streets or in a shelter because we couldn't get a shelter for her. And we have been working with Choices for Youth, their soft landings program. They got her a place. Not only that, they even put some food in there for the night for her. Everything that she needed, they're going to get furniture, this, this, whatever. Salvation Army provided her with a hamper, a voucher to go get some pots and pans at their thrift store. I was amazed how they went above what they had to do. Above. Well, it's a pretty critically important organization, and there's a lot of vulnerable youth out there. So I'm glad to hear the experience went the way it did for your family, Dorothy, because without groups like that, I don't know where people turn. Well, this is it. I tried. I've been trying for months and months and months, and I know the situation, like getting apartments and whatever. We looked at apartments, and they were mostly slum landlords and whatever, and the rent you couldn't pay. But this organization has a new program, and I won't get into the area, but they just built new units. They put her in a brand new unit, never lived in before. Matter of fact, I would sell my house and move in. Well, I'm really glad. I'm sure they appreciate the kind words from you, Dorothy, because, you know, we don't even really see the numbers of youth in the province that are in such desperate need for additional supports and services. And to know that maybe there's children outside of the metro region that don't have access to these types of programs really begs some very serious questions. But uh, I'm pleased that it worked out the way it did for you and your family. So they're all set up. 
Things are no, back on track. Uh, soft landings, and I got to say, Jim did. I mean, he's amazing. Amazing. I mean, what he does outside of his office is amazing. Well. So, you know, good organization. Don't give up. There's always help out there. Absolutely right. So that's one thing we try to add to the conversation is that there are supports. There are helps out there for whether it be children who are vulnerable or a variety of different issues, mental health and otherwise, that there is help. It might not be there immediately. It might be take, require some effort or someone to be your advocate or your champion, but the help is there. We just got to make sure it's there when people need it, not way down the road when things spiral and the situation becomes much worse. Well, that's the reason why I just wanted to pass on a big thank you to these organizations. And I'm glad you did it on the show. Thank you very much, Dorothy. All right. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That's good news. Uh, let's go to line two. Rick, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I was just calling there to comment on uh, that guy who was on there talking about the lobster pricing. Um, she's been like that for a good many years now. So... The, uh, how long lobster, normally is it before they go fishing for the lobster and they eventually get a price? Um, the lobster pricing formula was shot down a good many years ago now to it, it really it helped the fishermen get a better price for their lobsters. Uh, because one time the companies were going around and they pretty well throw out whatever they wanted to for the lobsters. But now with this pricing formula, it's shot by the market in Boston and the form law is sat down and adjusted every Tuesday night. Yeah, very much unlike some other species. Now, there's going to be some adjustments, like last year, for instance, in the crab. Eight bucks uh, at the beginning of the season. He eventually made its way all the way down to six fifteen. But so it's a much more weekly update on the price of lobster, is it, Rick? Yeah. Yes, that's right. But it, but actually, it usually works the same way. You usually start tight with a higher price and... Uh, by the end of the season, you're down to a lower price. Makes sense to me. Now, I don't, yeah. I don't quite understand the concept of fishing for a species, not knowing what I'm going to get for it. You know, kind of a consignment relationship, but strange one. Yeah, it's been been like that for for years. You you pretty well say that uh, when you start fishing lobsters, uh, you can say you're fishing for pretty well two weeks before you uh, get the payday. Is that right, eh? And so what yeah. happens? They Not only that they don't know the price, but they have to wait at least two weeks before they see any money roll in for their catch, period? Uh, pretty well, yes. Um, uh, yes, because, like I say, you start fishing, let's say, on a Monday, and it's the next Tuesday before the first price comes down for the year. So it ends pretty well at the end of the week before everybody gets their paychecks. I appreciate the update, Rick. I really didn't know there was that kind of lag time between the fishery opening and finally getting paid. Yeah, it's been like that for years. Wow. Yeah. And I'd say if you asked uh, most fishermen, uh, I know I heard Ryan saying that it wouldn't work, but uh, I think you asked most fishermen, and most fishermen are saying that uh, it has been working over the years. So they're, they're content enough with it? Uh, it seems to be that way. You don't hear too many people uh, complaining about it. Well, fair enough. If it works for them and that's their job, then good enough. The one point that uh, Mr. Cleary made, which is interesting as well, is that there's the question as to whether or not the harvesters are getting all they're due to get for their catch. If, for instance, the uh, fish companies would hold the lobster in a lobster tank and then sometime later in the year maybe be able to sell it for a higher price and none of that gets reflected in the uh, pay going to the harvester, there's questions as to whether or not 
that part of the system is working, but of course it's not my industry, so I don't really know what uh, individual harvesters would have to say, but you're telling me that they're content enough with the way it works. It seems to be that way. You know, it's a lot better than what it used to be one time for sure. And what was it, what, how did it used to be? Well, one time the, the companies will say they can all get together because uh, I want to say pretty well every fish company, the hit ones of the fish companies, they're pretty well, they all got homes in Florida and uh, they're all together in, in one bit in Florida talking about this before the spring starts saying any fisheries. Their prices was all sought and made up and whatever they wanted to pay, that was it. Wow. Rick, I really appreciate the info this morning. Okay, thank you. Have a good day, buddy. Same to you, sir. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, topic is up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to this, uh, the Liberal member for St. John's East, Kitty Vitti, Minister of Children, Seniors, Social Development, also responsible for the community sector. That's John Abbott. Minister Abbott, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty, and how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. How about you, sir? Very good. Thank you. I will add to your introduction, also responsible for the status of persons with disabilities and the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. But let's start with the community sector. Yes. Well, look, one of the reasons I wanted to call in today, uh, just to recognize the tens of thousands of volunteers across the province. This is National Volunteer Week, and uh, I thought it was more than appropriate that uh, we recognize all our volunteers, young and old, uh, here in the in the province, and there's been lots of uh, ce- celebratory events uh, here in uh, in the capital and elsewhere to, to do just that. As there should be. You know, it's one thing, and we should rightfully celebrate volunteers and offer enormous gratitude for what they do, but of course, inside the those organizations they work for, the not-for-profits or charities, they also rely in part on government funding. So while we thank the volunteers, we also have to make a concerted effort to fuel and to fund these groups because if they go out of existence, my assertion has long been, without the volunteers and the groups they work for, government simply doesn't have the horsepower to backfill. I agree uh, wholeheartedly, and uh, one of the things that the provincial government does do, we've got uh, over $100 million that we provide to uh, community groups and agencies to uh, to deliver programs and services and do advocacy, but all of those uh, uh, agencies rely on volunteers, whether it's their board of directors and in also uh, providing many of the services that uh, that they do. So uh, it goes to uh, to the heart of uh, of um, what happens in all our communities uh, right across the province. And as I said, we've got uh, uh, tens of thousands of volunteers, and uh, they are uh, uh, to be commended for getting up every day to uh, to help our communities. Uh, I'd like to move on to the uh, new report coming from a Toronto-based anti-poverty think tank called Maytree about the percentage of people in the province, some 28,000, that represents 7% of the population using social assistance. You know, the, some historical context, back in the mid-90s, it was around 15%. My question this morning would be very similar to like in the world of education, where we know that some 10% of students are chronically absent. Do we follow them, find out what becomes of them, whether it be interaction with the criminal justice system, health care, social assistance, and otherwise? I'm asking similar questions in this number. Is, is the next step, logically, to have a better understanding of who they are, why they find themselves on social assistance? Because there's always going to be a social safety net need for a variety of reasons for Canadians uh, coast to coast to coast. But what do we do with these numbers, this information? 
Well, Patty, uh, you know, I think very fair questions. One of the things we're doing right now is a review of the income support program uh, to do a deeper dive on many of the questions you've just asked. We have a very good uh, uh, understanding of and the profile of our our caseload. For instance, uh, we're spending now roughly $210 million on income support payments uh, right across the province. Uh, We have a caseload right now of around just over 20,000 clients uh, in the program. That's come down uh, considerably over the past number of years. Uh, And we are looking at uh, how we can restructure our program uh, so that, one, from an administrative point of view, we make it simpler for those who do need to apply and are are eligible, as well as how we can restructure benefits that act more as an incentive to move into uh, the workforce or back to the workforce or into an education or training program. So we've started with uh, with youth here in the province. Uh, we're seeing early successes, and we look to expand that uh, over over the next uh, you know period of time. Uh, and that's I think will help us deal with and address some of the big issues that the health accord has has identified for the province that we got to address the social determinants of health, income, and housing being critical if we're going to have any success in improving the overall health of of our population. So as you can see, it all ties in, and our department is right in the thick of that. That's exactly what I was going to ask, because it's not to say that the left hand never knows what the right hand is doing inside the operations of government, but sometimes it does feel like we get one piece of data that refers to issues inside of your portfolio, but has direct overlap with, for instance, in this case, health and community services. So I'm really glad to hear that that was an answer offered before I even asked the question, because that's the key to getting it right, isn't it? It's one thing for your department to take on your role, but if it doesn't dovetail with what's going on at the health accord or health community services or the education system, then we just start piecemealing things. Yeah, so the Premier and my you know, cabinet colleagues have challenged me and my fellow cabinet ministers who are working in the social sector to uh, really to work together uh, to uh, address these issues. Uh, one of the uh, uh, issues we're dealing with are, are children, uh, as, a, as a case in point, because the Department of Education deal, deals with children, the Department of Health deals with children, I deal with children, some others. So how can we integrate our uh, our supports for, for children as an example of the approach we are we are starting to take care uh, on a go-forward a couple of housing questions. Uh, some while back, there was an announcement in conjunction with the federal government and the municipal governments to talk about affordable housing and the construction of some 750 units. In the most recent federal budget, there's another program now talking about the construction of 850 units. Can you give us the status of both? Uh, you know, where are we? How many houses have been built? How many are under construction? So what we're doing as a province, uh, we have put in the budget uh, $70 million dollars uh, to build at a minimum 850 uh, affordable housing units across the province over the next three years. And we're in the final stage of conversations with the Home Builders Association in terms of the program design uh, with the intent to get a proposal call out in May and then get construction going uh, mid-late summer, as it were. Uh, and that, so that's what we're doing. At the same time, the federal government has some of their programming. Uh, right now, for instance, we are uh, co-funding uh, 
looking at building new apartment buildings down in Pleasantville. And up in, uh, we're building new housing up in uh, Happy Valley Goose Bay. Uh, we're doing some other work across uh, across the province. So that's uh, that's uh, in play as well. And then there's some separate federal funding that they're targeting to municipalities, and they have a proposal called out. And we're working with uh, a couple of community agencies to build some supportive housing units uh, elsewhere uh, in the province. So there's a lot happening, but the demand and the need for, for housing is uh, continuing to grow, and we need to expand uh, the housing stock at a minimum uh, to meet that demand. For example, the new Canadians, our Ukrainian uh, friends who are coming here, we've got to make sure we got housing for them. So there's a lot of demand, a lot of activity, and a lot more work to be done. There's going to always be some variables in the construction season, whether it be weather, access to construction companies, what have you, but is there a timeline for the completion of all of these 1,600 affordable housing units? Well, for, for the ones I mentioned that we've announced the budget, we, we are planning to do that over the next three years. We've had a lot of conversation with contractors and builders and the like, and they're ready to go. Uh, they, 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 and I think can deliver on that uh, very, very quickly. So uh, we're, we're optimistic that we can meet uh, all those targets. We're doing a major project now with the gathering place, rede- redeveloping the Mercy Convent into uh, improved shelter and supportive housing. Uh, and that uh, has a timeline of basically 12 to 18 months. So uh, these are very strict timelines that the federal government has imposed on their funding, and uh, we're doing likewise. Uh, last one quickly. Uh, do we have an update on the numbers of units inside Newfoundland Labrador housing that are still boarded up and status of renovations? Because there's a significant need for housing across the province, regardless of where we're talking. I see pictures from Labrador, pictures from Cornerbrook with the boards on the windows. Do we have a number of yeah. units that are offline at the moment? Um, Patty, we have just over 200 units that would probably sort of fit that category, and we have funding and plans in place to make sure all those units are rehabilitated over the next 12 to, to 18 months. So that's uh, that's been funded, and uh, one of the immediate challenges we have, for, for instance, in Labrador, <laughs> is making sure we can find a contractor to to respond to our uh, our repro- proposal calls. But outside of that, uh, we have uh, plans in place to uh, to, to meet uh, and get those up and running as, as quickly as possible over the next year. I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. So the Minister responsible for the community sector, housing, social development, that's John Abbott. Let's see here. Uh, very quickly, coming up after the news break, the CEO of the Newfoundland Labrador Health Services is David Diamond. And I suppose someone in his office heard me ask questions about whether it be the overall motivation to bring all four regional health authorities into the fold of the Department of Health and Community Services. What the efficiencies or redundancies might look like, what it's going to mean for operations, where the jobs are going to be, and exactly what the hope is to improve the healthcare system with this particular process. Let's take a break. When we come back, David Diamond, then you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, we're going to be joined by uh, Brian Callahan in a second. He's VOCM News reporter covering the court system. And, you know, the question that I was posing about the Schools Act being in place, and it said quite clearly that as long as the schools, or the buildings are being used for educational purposes, then they wouldn't be part of a conversation, whether it be with uh, the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation, selling them to the province or whatever the case may be. So that's where we stand. Now, Brian knows more about it. And I guess it sounds like a preemptive strike as much as anything. I'm not sure who 
who David has in the queue. But let's get a quick update from Mr. Callahan here before we move on. So, Brian, my question was just fundamental: is that the Schools Act was there, it was uh, instituted in '97, passed in 1998, and it quite clearly said the schools are out of out of bounds and they can't be sold for any purpose. But you say that there was a pending challenge in the courts. Yeah. So th there was an amendment made at that time. They never contemplated. They never. It was arguably for uh, short-sighted. And ironically enough, uh, Tom Osborne at the time in the opposition, this is exactly the issue he raised. How are we not compensating the churches? So they made the amendment that said that the schools would continue as long as they continued in edu as an education. And that issue was the crux of whether or not the schools could be a part of this bankruptcy. So that issue was actually about to be argued as you, you know, wondering what, you know, what happens to it now. And the settlement, uh, interrupted all of that. So when they came to the settlement, it, it, the whole argument, and it would have been fascinating, Patty, it would have been basically the victims, lawyers for the victims of abuse, arguing that their interests trumped the education of students in the province and that the school should be sold and we all but they came to an agreement and Jeff Budden said this week everybody had to sort of get cooler minds province had to do what was in the best interest of the person so they came to this agreement but it would have been a fascinating argument if it had gone to court instead now that whole issue of the amendment and that schools had to continue as long as they're giving education that's now moot because the province bought the schools and I guess for me, had there been a legal argument made and the uh, victim's representatives were successful, mm. we'd still be where we are. I wonder what that impact had on the eventual price. Well, exactly. And that was, they won't go anywhere near the details of the price. You can see they said it's 13 million. And other than that, they're clamming because all these issues, of course, of real estate values and all that sort of stuff could come. Who knows? I mean, they're sold now. It doesn't mean they can't be resold later. So the values of those will be up in the air. Uh, again, when you go back to what Jeff was pointing out, it's like how important are, uh, it was an issue that would have had to been argued, the one versus the other. And as you said, just because it's settled at this point now, whether or not it would have gotten to that and the larger precedent setting issue for other, but we know BC is just waiting in the wings, right? The victims have, they have to argue those cases out there, same thing, different pot of money, but the same arguments. And I guess settled is a fairly loose term yeah. because there's some of these uh, pieces of property that maybe don't even have a survey most recent 150 years so between understanding the titles and the surveys and other logistical issues this is going to be a while before it's finally settled yeah everybody agrees that the the time and expense that would have went into say they cut losses here there's no question there's some, no way some of these properties as, as again i quote jeff button talking about some of these properties were bought with pound sterling in mm -hmm. 1986, in, sure. 19, in 1860. So <laughs> trying to actually come up to a value that equals, you know, that's equal with today's values is, you know, it, it just, in the interest of the victims, and the judge said this several times, they have been waiting so long, many have passed, some have passed uh, since then. They needed to get this. They all agreed that the precedent, the, the priority here was compensating the victims as best they could under circumstances. Appreciate the time and the info, Brian. No problem. Thanks. That's VO7's Brian Callahan. Okay, let's keep going. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the CEO of the Newfoundland and Labrador Health services that's dave diamond good morning mr diamond you're on the air oh good morning patty welcome Thanks to the program i'm happy to do it Thanks. you know i've asked some very fundamental maybe high level questions about the amalgamation of the four rhas into the department first off i guess the starting point is what exactly was the motivation to do this well i think uh you know we've what we've seen across uh, the country is uh, all the provinces over time moving to uh 
look to have provincial systems actually work and operate like provincial systems. And uh, in, the, in the previous system, which actually worked relatively well, I would say, uh, I uh, enjoyed uh, working in the regional health authority system and thought we did some very good things, Eastern Health, Central Health, Western Labrador, Grenfell, and, and uh, the Newfoundland and Labrador Center for Health Information providing the IT. So that was uh, a pretty good system. I think uh, what we're hoping with a consolidated system is actually even to build on that now and uh, to really operate across the system as, as one system. You know, the Health Accord sets out a 10-year vision that is, uh, you know, I, I think is a, a fantastic, uh, really forward-looking vision. And, and in order to do that with a level of consistency to achieve what needs to happen in population health. It's it's somewhat easier, I think, in the, in the context of one organization, one leadership team, one IT system, one HR system, and so on, to be able to really get organized to drive the uh, the benefits uh, that we we hope will we all hope I think can come to the uh, population of the province. Uh, through the recommendations of the Health Accord. And so, you know, I think uh, that's really the motivation is how do we design a system now that allows us to take the recommendations of the Health Accord, to have one system, as I say, an IT system, uh, different systems, HR and so on, and uh, be consistent across the province. So that's what we hope to do. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, I guess, uh, three weeks in, uh, almost into four weeks now. Uh, since the 1st of April and uh, things are going well from our perspective. So we're really interested to get through this uh, initial transition period. We've got a leadership team in place and, um, you know, we're starting now to think about uh, what some of our early priorities might be coming out of that, uh, those health accord recommendations. Things like the IT system and human resources, very much operational issues. What specifically do you think could be achieved to improve the healthcare delivery system for patients <laughs> and I guess healthcare professionals? Yeah, so, I mean, I think uh, a lot in terms of uh, uh, improvement for patients, we hope, will come out of the provincial system. We're uh, starting to look, for for example, at what structures we can put in place that will, will drive the recommendations around seniors' care coming out of the health accord. Surgical services is another area we've, we've started in the last uh, few weeks, for example, with a, an orthopedic surgical team from St. John's uh, flying back and forth to St. Anthony and doing uh, orthopedic surgery using capacity that was underutilized in St. Anthony because they didn't have the surgeons and some of the health professionals there, but they have space and they have nurses. And so we think there are lots of those opportunities as we ferret them out over time to uh, maximize the capability that we have in the province. And if it means health professionals traveling to where we have capacity in the case of orthopedic surgery, for example. I mean, those are, those are the, so some very basic examples. Um, we are going to put some structures in place, seniors care, one of our early priorities uh, out the gate uh, this spring, looking at uh, uh, how do we take uh, the recommendations in the health accord around frailty, for example, and uh, build out consistent uh, capability across the province. So, uh, lots of things uh, on the uh, docket, lots of things that uh, we hope we will be able to achieve pretty early days in the transition, but uh, we're already starting to think about um, uh, you know, what our priorities might need to be. And Im- improving access, frankly, is uh, one, of the, one of the main uh, priorities as we head into the spring and summer. 
you know, no one's cheering for anyone to lose their job, but with this consolidation, obviously there's going to be some redundancies identified, whether it be in procurement or mid-management or what have you. How are we approaching that? Because, again, no one wants anyone to lose their job, but we need to ensure that we just have as many people that we actually need to deliver. Sure. Yeah, great point. And, uh, you know, we, I've been fortunate in leading this transition. And one of the things the government did for us early on is committed that uh, that nobody actually would lose a job uh, directly as a result of uh, the, uh, the the transfer into the new system. Um, over time, as we uh, uh, implement new systems and new ways of uh, looking at things, new models and so on, there will no doubt be some efficiencies in a number of areas where we're in the interesting situation from a health human resources perspective is actually, you know, we have lots of gaps and vacancies even as it is. And so, uh, you know, quite differently from 20 years ago when uh, some of us would have been around uh, in the last iteration of restructuring in the province when, you know, we had in many cases way more people than we needed in the new systems. Uh, we have we have so many issues and challenges on the HR side and, and vacancies and so on. I'm not anticipating that, uh, you know, I, I'm anticipating that anything that we need to do that will drive efficiencies can actually be done through attrition, which is the commitment that the government made uh, to us and to, to, uh, to the employees of uh, the health system when we, when we got into this last year. Would the location of the employees change here? Because people would, would like to know whether or not, you know, whether being Western or Central, that some management and other professionals involved in, these, in the delivery are where they live. So will people be relocating? Like we saw, for instance, when the Crown Lands went to Cornerbrook, the staff went with them? Yeah, so we're not anticipating that either. I think is one of the benefits uh, coming out uh, out the end of the pandemic is that you know we've we've all really learned how much is uh, possible in uh, with uh, with uh, uh, in terms of remote work and virtual technology and so on. So uh, you know, oftentimes in the past when we've done these kinds of mergers, if you're in payroll or if you're in finance or IT, there's some requirement that we centralize those services and that people actually move. I think uh, the benefit that we have uh, this time around is that uh, using the technology that we have and all of what we've learned about the pandemic, you can be a payroll officer. You know, you may have worked in St. Anthony in the previous structure uh, and you did payroll. You can live and work in St. Anthony, support the provincial system, do payroll from there, and we can use the remote technology. So our our strategies around this is actually very much to allow people to live and work, uh, you know, live and, and work and support the provincial system wherever they might uh, be in the province. And you know, I think that's a big win for us because it's something we weren't able to do in previous uh, transitions. And it's one of the things that, of course, for staff who uh, live uh, in uh, rural and remote parts of the province in particular, the pressures for centralization into St. John's, for example, is not there this time. And uh, so that's a, a really big plus. And again, one of the uh, unexpected, probably, advantages that uh, we're in this time round because of the pandemic. Uh, is there a timeline in place for when the consolidation or the transition is complete so that we can have a better understanding of jobs lost through attrition and just get on with the delivery system? Uh, I don't know if uh, you know, we, we haven't set a date that says as of, as of this date it'll all be done because I'm not sure it'll ever all be done. Sure. I think uh, we, we'll be in uh, in uh, transitions and looking for new ways of doing things and new models over time. So um, I think, uh, you know, between now and September, some of the uh, acute stages of 
getting a new leadership team in place and then understanding what the level of leadership looks like underneath the uh, VPs uh, and some of those structural things, I think, you know, into September and mid-fall, uh, those things will uh, will be in place and we'll go from there. But I think, uh, you know, like, like many industries, uh, at, at this point in time, uh, change and transformation, we anticipate will be in that uh, on an ongoing basis. So I'd never want to say as of this date it'll be done because there'll always be more to do. And I'm not even sure what done actually means. Uh, I appreciate the time <laughs> sure. this morning, David. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Patty, if I could uh, just uh, – one of the things I uh, was interested in uh, just uh, – uh, mentioning as I know there's been some angst uh, this week uh, uh, on the Bonavista Peninsula around uh, physician recruitment and uh, this is a long-standing issue that we've had in that area and and, and frankly in lots of rural areas but uh, just wanted to uh, assure the folks on the Bonavista Peninsula that the recruitment efforts have uh, are, are actually being very successful and the government's uh, initiatives uh, incentives that they announced a few weeks ago of uh, uh, you know we've, we've got a couple of uh, uh, commitments verbal commitments and we're working through the paperwork to get the those things finalized and uh, a number of others uh, that we've made offers to people that are very interested in working through a process so things are looking up on the uh, Bonavista Peninsula in terms of physician recruitment and uh, I know that's been an area of angst this week for folks there and I just uh, as a kind of a closing comment would just want to reassure people that uh, things are uh, things are coming along from that perspective so those uh, two doctors are coming we've got verbal commitments from them and uh, we're finalizing the paperwork as we speak so uh, we're uh, we're pretty confident that we've got two and then a number of others that uh, you know are in the process as well and uh, we're working through the paperwork obviously these are for the people we, we've attracted a lot of interest with the uh, incentives that the government has uh, allowed us to offer there but these are big major life decisions for physicians and their families and so it does take a bit of time to get uh, uh, to get people uh, actually on the ground but uh, we're, we're pretty optimistic appreciate your time this morning sir thank you okay. Thanks, Patty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's David Diamond. He's the CEO of the Newfoundland Labrador Health Services. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, we're talking some critical minerals, maybe some wind project stuff. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Burjo Lapoil. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology. Andrew Parsons. Minister Parsons, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? Not too bad. How about you? It's been a busy week, uh, but it's really nice to be back on home uh, home turf. Uh, bringing back any good news from the conference in the U.K.? Uh, well, I guess that'll be best told by the membership that's there. So the conference you reference is the Ocean Business International Conference, which is over in the UK. It's a, basically a ocean tech uh, exhibition training forum. And it's amazing how big the group is that we have going there. We had about 16 different groups in some way or another, either exhibitors or attendees. We had startups. And, and the reality is that there's a huge opportunity for us. In, in fact, we've identified it as a priority. We think there's more to be done. Uh, and a lot of the tech that we develop here has applications throughout the world. I mean, one just off the top, I look at Kraken Pangeo. Most of the contracts that you see these days, they are getting from international companies or navies. Uh, and like I said, there's so many more. They have uh, amazing 
just amazing tech that's going on, but we had to get out and sell it, and they think they need support from our government to do so. So it was uh, great, and we'll see what the companies bring back. Sometimes it's the connections that you make that help you down the road, uh, establishing these uh, these friendships. Uh, they can pay off in the end. There's every reason to believe we should be a center of excellence for all ocean tech and uh, all things to do with the ocean. You know, people make the ar- argument for Norway or Aberdeen. Or we should be the gateway to the north. We should be the leading go-to jurisdiction for all this type of work, in my opinion. You know, build out the Marine Institute. No, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, we've got all the partners here. You've got the Marine Institute. We've got our other post-secondary, both private and public. Uh, there's no doubt. We, as a department, we're full. You know, we're full on. We're you know ready to go here. And there's no reason we can't compete with other jurisdictions. And the fact is, we are only a province. Uh, but right now, we're building that name. But half of it is the fact that everybody's competing here. We're not that well-known globally. There's a lot of people that still don't know us. We need to get out. We need to sell. Uh, we need to show what we have, and it will come. I wish we had more time, so we'll try to get through a few. So I don't know what the status is of whether we're going to hear there's a green light for Royal Energy, GH2, or anybody else coming, but talk us through the thought process on the water royalty. For instance, why isn't there a staggered royalty versus no royalty will be collected until their capital investment is recovered? Because that could be... There can be some crafty things going on in that world, too. And, you know, water's one of the most precious commodities on the face of the earth. We seem to be charging too little too late. Why? Well, the first thing I will tell you is that, again, you know, we consider all these questions. They're all valid. There was no real precedent to start with. Other jurisdictions actually do have, uh, you know, some form of water royalty. We are in that mix a lot. Don't. None of them had it to come with when it comes to a hydrogen uh, project, we'll say. So we're building this from scratch. Uh, We had to start somewhere. The biggest issue... I think that we have here is that we are competing not just within Canada. I've said this to you before. We're competing globally. Uh, we're competing with Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. We're competing with other jurisdictions, especially in Nova Scotia, where they're pushing ahead. So we could have gone heavy on the taxation. We could have gone heavy on the royalty. But a couple of realities here. Number one, if we price ourselves out of the market, nobody's going to come here. They will go elsewhere. No matter how good our resource is, no matter all the attributes that make us a prime destination, we have to keep that in mind. Because the second factor is that these this is brand new. We still don't know what the uptake on this is truly going to be. What is the market cost going to be? What is the capex going to be? And... Uh, when it comes to these companies here, I mean, they're most in most situations, we're talking about they're going to require investment to to be relevant. They're going to require investment to be feasible. As a province, we have said to them, look, we're not going to be sinking investment dollars into you. They're going to be going to the feds. There's no doubt the feds have that clean energy fund and a number of other opportunities here. When you look at most green or renewable projects around the world, most of them have to be subsidized. So in this case, we had to... Uh, basically keep these factors in mind here. Now, is that going to work out for us? I mean, we hope there has been no shortage of work put into it, but we're going to see where we end up here. And we, you know, again, keeping in mind the fact is we have a resource here. That the wind is one thing, but our water is especially important. We feel we're in a good place there. We feel we're going to get a fair return. And no matter what we do, somebody's going to say you're taking too much. Somebody's going to say you're taking too little. Somebody's going to say you're not taking it at the right time. But if we we want a successful regime, we want successful companies. We don't want to start it off on either end and make it so that we don't get started off and it ends up being a failure. We're trying to build for success.
I'm, I'm, I wish I had more time, like I've already said. So maybe next week we can talk oil and gas and hydro, Atlantic Loop in 2041, critical minerals and otherwise. But is there a timeline in mind for when we're going to see rejections or approvals for um, instance at World Energy? Yeah, we're st- we've said all along we're looking towards end of June, early July in that ballpark. Um, the reality is that we've got a tremendous amount of paperwork in front of us to look at each of these applications is thousands of pages right now we're in the thick of of the the first phase which is basically determining feasibility are they actually able to pull this off? Are they actually feasible? Then we move forward into the technical. Uh, so there'll be more to be said as we go. Uh, but I got to tell you, I'd be more than happy to come back next week and talk about a few of these things and line up like these conversations because it is a good chance to talk about the, the million different things it feels like the department's into. And I think they're important too. Let's do that. I appreciate your time this morning. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. So Minister Andrew Parsons. Final word of the morning goes to line number one of the co-chair of WEAR Act. That's Graham Wood. Graham, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. You go right ahead and finish us off before we run out of time. I just wanted to say that uh, I never heard anybody talk about Earth Day tomorrow, so I want to wish everybody a happy Earth Day, and hopefully uh, the people around the province get out and support local Earth Day events and activities that are happening in their communities. Do you happen to know of one particular event or another that we can talk about? In St. John's, there's there's a number of events that I've heard about, but I, I think there are others in other other parts of the province also. I'll have a look around and I'll put a few of them on my social media feed so people are aware of them. I wish we had more time again, Graham. 12 o'clock came, came quick today. Not a today. problem. Thank Remember, you. Protect, our, protect our province. Here, here. Right on. Thanks, Graham. All right. Uh, Good show today. Good week. Big thanks to all who support the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.